Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. morning guys i'll get to the point right away i'm retiring for good i know the process uh was a pretty big deal last time so when i woke up this morning i figured i just press record and let you guys know first so i uh, won't be long-winded I think you only get one super emotional retirement essay and i used mine up last year so uh, really thank you guys so much to every single one of you for supporting me my family my friends, my teammates, my competitors. Uh, I could go on forever, there's too many. Um, thank you guys for allowing me to live my absolute dream. I wouldn't change a thing. Love you all. That was Tom Brady this morning as he just decided to take a stroll on the beach, sit down somewhere and let all of us know the decision that has been in waiting for a while now, and that is that he is officially going to be retiring. Let's start here. This time last year, I thought Tom Brady was going to retire. I had heard from a few buddies that cover the league. Hey, this thing could be heading towards retirement when a lot of people, myself included, were like, why? Tom Brady's still playing really well. Why not just continue performing? And we all know what happened. He decided to, to change his mind. He came back to the Buccaneers, and this year was more or less a disaster. On the field, off the field. I have to imagine the dude is just completely exhausted at this point and didn't want to do it any longer. So that makes sense. I will say I'm, I'm a little surprised again, Tanner. This time around, I'm more surprised even than I was at this time last year. He literally one year ago today announced that he was going to be retiring because I think there's some really good situations for him if he wanted to keep going. If he wanted to continue playing, I think San Francisco would have been a great spot for Tom Brady. If he wanted to keep playing, I think Las Vegas, I could see the rationale for going there with your old play caller with Devontae Adams. There's some good opportunities there. I think he's just not in it anymore. I think he was done officially. Like he went through this season emotionally, physically. He just didn't, he could not continue to do this. So I get it. And he more has more than earned the right to go out on his own way. But I am a little bit surprised that we got this news this morning that he is going to officially retire. I was too, because I was kind of with you. There were a bunch of spots that made sense to me. Las Vegas, San Francisco, you know, Miami maybe was going to kick the tires again on Tom Brady. So I was shocked this morning when I got the ESPN notification telling me that he had retired. But to your point, I mean, he's been doing it for 23 plus years. So he's earned the right to retire seven time Super Bowl champion. I mean, he's just been unbelievable throughout his career. And, you know, we kind of saw the tea leaves this year where he wasn't. I think it was 
all year long. He wasn't really practicing until Thursdays. It was kind of the, he had the retirement last year, and then he came back. I, I think that was the one that kind of really put me in the fold of, oh, yeah, he wants to play longer than just one year is the unretirement and leading to what we what we thought from the outside looking in was what led to his marriage ending mm-hmm. this past year and that's what made me think also hey you know you don't just do that for one more final hurrah in Tampa Bay you want to do that and continue to play for another couple of years but you know I I the way that it ended, you know, it's tough to see him go out the way it did where Tampa Bay was just a disaster this season. But you know what? After seven Super Bowl championships, at some point you have to be bad when you're going in your career. So it's sad to see him go because he's always fun to watch. Even at the age of 46, he was fun to watch. But, you know, shocked nonetheless. But it was great to see. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved. Tom Brady rewrote the record books in every way possible. Listen to this. Saw this tweeted out earlier today from ESPN Stats and Info. There are only two players in the history of the league that did the following. Had at least five 4,000-yard passing seasons, won an MVP, went to two Super Bowls and won them, and won a Super Bowl MVP. So that's it. MVP, two Super Bowl wins, Super Bowl MVP, and had at least five 4,000-yard seasons. Only two players ever did that in their entire careers. The first was Peyton Manning. The second was Tom Brady since he turned 40 years old. Over the past six seasons, he accomplished that feat. Wow. Tom Brady is on a different level than any other player in the history of the league. And he has completely altered, in my opinion, for the worse, unfortunately, the way that we evaluate quarterbacks around the league. I was just looking into some of the numbers on Brady earlier today, whether it's Super Bowl appearances, what he did when he got there, all of these different things, right? Most Super Bowl appearances by a quarterback not named Tom Brady. These all seem relatively reasonable. John Elway went to five. Peyton Manning, Jim Kelly, Joe Montana, Terry Bradshaw, Roger Staubach. I mean, a who's who of the greatest quarterbacks of the last 50 years. They all went to four. Ben, Kurt Warner, Aikman, Tarkenton, Bob Greasy, Patrick Mahomes. They've been to three. Tom Brady went to 10. Basically half the time when he was a starting quarterback in this league, he ended up in the Super Bowl. You want to look at Super Bowl wins by a quarterback not named Tom Brady. Montana and Bradshaw, they used to be the guys. Nobody was going to get to that. They had four. Aikman had three, and he dominated the 90s with the Cowboys. The Manning brothers, Ben, Elway, Plunkett, Greasy, Starbuck, Star, they've all got two. Mahomes is hoping to add his name to that list by the end of this season. Brady has as many as Montana and Aikman combined. He has completely changed the way that quarterbacks are evaluated at this point in time because of the rings culture. He is to the NFL what Michael Jordan became to the NBA, where it didn't matter what LeBron was able to accomplish. It doesn't matter what Luka Doncic does. It doesn't matter what the Greek freak is able to do in Giannis Antetokounmpo. Those guys will never be able to live up to what Michael was because Michael was 6-0. When he got there, he won it. For Brady, it's about he went to 10 and won seven of them. Getting to that volume of Super Bowls, I don't think we're ever going to see it again. And it completely changes the way that people will evaluate Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen and Justin Herbert and Joe Burrow and Jalen Hurts, all these different guys. Yeah, you guys could be great. You'll never be Tom, though. And that's what he has done for the sport. For better or worse, he's completely changed the way that we talk about the game. Yeah, I I agree with you because... 
for better or worse, it is now going to be the standard of, hey, seven Super Bowls is where you've got to get to if you're a quarterback like Patrick Mahomes, who is viewed as the greatest quarterback right now in the current NFL. So, and, and it's going to be tough to get to that point ever again. I mean, you look at what Tom Brady did. Not only do you have to be as good as he was, you have to be playing at a high level late into your 30s and into your early 40s, which yeah. is not a common theme among athletes with the aging curve that we know of today. So, I he does set the new standard. I, I don't think we're ever going to see guys get back to that level. I don't think Mahomes can win seven Super Bowls. Like, three, four would be really good, and I think Mahomes can do that. But it's going to be tough because, as you said, this ring culture that we're in now in sports, everybody's going to look at him and go, well, he wasn't close to Tom Brady because he didn't end up with seven rings. So I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think that is now the new standard and talk about a tough standard to beat. The other thing with Brady that I've always found fascinating is just the, the way that his career evolved. Right, You look back on it. Like you get those first three rings out of the way and those were very different teams than what he ended up becoming. He was not even the driving force behind them winning those early rings. Brady was kind of a passenger. He was for those teams what like Jimmy Garoppolo was for the 49ers or um, what Jared Goff in some ways was for the L.A. Rams. And I'm not saying that he was a bad player. He wasn't. He, He was fine. But Tom Brady was a passenger. It was the defense. It was Bill Belichick. It was the timely moments coming up in the clutch for sure. He was a big part of that. But those early years in in New England, he just happened to be a, a really solid piece to the puzzle. And then the defense aged out. They traded a lot of those guys. Some of them retired and they changed the way that they were going to operate. By 2007, They had completely altered the team, and now they were completely focused on the offense. They put together arguably, if not the greatest offense in the NFL, one of them in the history of the league. Throw touchdowns, throws for almost 5,000 yards that year. We all remember the season with Randy Moss. It was unbelievable. And you get to the Super Bowl that way. And then they go through some lean years. They didn't draft as well. They had to change things once again. And then what do they do? They go to the two tight end offense with, you know, the murderer, Aaron Hernandez and Rob Gronkowski. And they build that to a lot of success. And then they change again after Aaron Hernandez goes to prison. And you have the slot receiver. You've got the Wes Welker in 07. And then eventually Julian Edelman, who's going to win across the middle. And you've got Rob Gronkowski. And that's the team that for me, like I will remember Brady for those years in New England. And then after all of that success in New England, he's able to go somewhere else and immediately turn another team around. I think that's what's so special about him, man, is that you look at any era of Tom Brady's career and it looks a little different than the one that preceded it. And you don't see that very often with NFL quarterbacks. He, in some ways, was the same player from start to finish the way that he operated. But man, there were so many different ways that his teams were able to win. Yeah, there's not a lot of guys that can do that. I mean, we talk, I mean, you just mentioned all the ways that Tom Brady won. I mean, I look at quarterbacks now, and I feel like a lot of quarterbacks in the league benefit from the system that they're around. And I don't know if they could change that kind of 
philosophy around them. Like I'm thinking of Jalen Hurts, for example. Like if Jalen Hurts wasn't in what the Philadelphia Eagles offense is, which is they've got A.J. Brown who goes across the middle and then you can run the read option. But if you were to put him in, say, I don't know, a a pass-heavy offense that didn't run the ball a lot, I don't think Jalen Hurts would be having success. Tom Brady, not running the read option, of course, but Tom Brady running any offense, you felt comfortable that he was going to be able to win. There is no system. Tom Brady is the system. And, And I was just looking because of this standard that you said, you know, you have to win seven rings is now going to be the standard. Patrick Mahomes, if he wins the Super Bowl this year, will be at two mm-hmm. in five full years. Now, he would have three trips to the Super Bowl, but two wins. That would mean he's on pace for in 15 seasons to finish with six rings, which would fall short of Tom Brady. That's remarkable to think of 15 years in the league, and we could be talking about Mahomes still being short of Tom Brady's accomplishment of never, seven Super Bowl it's rings. never going to be matched. You just We're, we're never going to see it again, and I think that's in some ways frustrating because now the conversation becomes like, how do they reach that? You're chasing ghosts that are never going to be achievable. And that's what Tom Brady did. He he set the standard so high that nobody can ever be able to match it. The other thing that this does is for this offseason, if you're a team that's looking for a quarterback, you're the Raiders, you're the 49ers. It completely changes what your expectations are. If I'm the Raiders, I'm going back to Derek Carr. I'm giving him a call and saying, hey, We messed up. We're sorry. We want you back. You have to be begging at this point because your options out there on the open market are not particularly appealing. Jeff Darlington mentioned this earlier today on ESPN. I was legitimately surprised to hear it. I don't think Tom Brady was ever going to the Raiders or the 49ers. It sure sounds like he had two options on the table and he decided one of them. This was really going to come down to the Bucks or retirement, which is something that I think a lot of people had difficulty believing based on the fact that the Bucks retirement or Bucks roster wasn't shaped necessarily for success coming this season. But he believed that he wanted to be part of the solution if ultimately he did wind up continuing to play. Uh, I think that's an interesting component here. He was not necessarily planning to play the free agency market. I'm shocked by that. I would have expected that he wanted to go to, you know, 49ers or the Raiders. It it sure seemed like it was heading in that direction. If you're the Raiders and this is now where you're sitting or you're the 49ers, this is where you're sitting and you thought you had a chance at Brady and now that's over. How much does this change your offseason plans in your opinion, T-Bone? Well, it changes a lot because I I would have, like you said, I would probably be calling Derek Carr and apologizing and trying to get him to stay with you on that roster because I think he's better than Jimmy Garoppolo, who is going to be the other quarterback on the market. Geno Smith will be a free agent who will be on the market, and Daniel Jones. I think Carr's better than all those guys, even though he had a down year. I still think he's a better quarterback than those guys. And if you're San Francisco, it just became even a tougher solution because I thought, okay, with Lance being hurt with the elbow, or excuse me, not Lance, uh, Purdy with the elbow having the injury, Lance coming off his major ankle injury that he just had, that, okay, they could go out there and get that veteran presence guy and Tom Brady move on from Jimmy Garoppolo. Now I don't know what San Francisco's doing. That was one of the first thoughts I had after I, I saw the news of Tom Brady. I was like, wow, Tom Brady retired. And I was like, holy bleep, what is San Francisco going to do this offseason? I, I don't know what they do. I, I think they're going to stick with those young quarterbacks that they have and just see if one of those guys ends up taking the reins in a quarterback competition and can be that guy for the, for the years to come. But for Las Vegas, yeah, I, I think it is now the, oh, sorry, Derek Carr. It's the apology tour coming from the ownership group down to the head coach in McDaniels. I think that if you're the 49ers, at least you have internal options. I don't know what you do if you're the Raiders, because I I think they were all in on the Brady chase. And now that's over and you've already alienated your starting quarterback. 
and there's no clear pivot on the market. Like, let's say in this scenario, Aaron Rodgers ends up getting traded to the Jets. What is the next best option for a team? Like, If they're looking for a veteran starting quarterback, is it Jimmy Garoppolo? Is that the next best guy that's available this offseason? Probably, unless you buy into what Geno was this year, but he really cooled off down. And the end of the I think he's going to end up back in Seattle. Like, if you're Seattle, what are you going to do? I, I would rather just bring him back than go out there and get the scraps of whatever is available. Almost have to explore trading up if you're Las Vegas. Daniel Jones, I think he's back in New York at this point because of what's happening elsewhere. Like, this, this does have a bit of a domino effect of, it pushes everybody else up a rung compared to what we were expecting previously. It, if I'm a quarterback needy team, you mentioned it. I have now become that much more interested in trade and in, in trading up to be able to get my quarterback. So whoever your favorite guy is in the draft, they're going to go that much higher as a result of Tom Brady retiring. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but I do think it is that much of an impact on the, the potential for the quarterback carousel this offseason because of how many teams need to go out there and get their guy coming up in about 15 minutes or so we'll get to a college basketball whip around slew was in um on the court last night did not go well for them illinois was on the court and it went well especially in the second half we'll discuss their two games and how it's two teams that seem to be heading in different directions coming up in about 15 minutes but coming up next is there anything anything that could happen over the next 10 games that would change the conversation for the St. Louis Blues. My answer is a clear and resounding no. Somebody else on the station disagrees with that. We'll let you hear it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. March 3rd, I think it has to be an auction. Mm-hmm. I don't think the Blues can afford to try to hang on to any of these guys. Yeah. I think they have to take the best price that they can get for all of their UFAs and try to rebuild through the draft. That's essentially how they did it when they won the Cup. When you had people like Schwartz and Tarasenko and Alex Petrangelo and Bennington, that team was at least half homegrown, Joel Edmondson. So I think that's one of the things the Blues need to do is get back to their roots of draft and develop. That was Randy Carricker earlier today on the morning show talking about what happens with the Blues after this break. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. In about 15 minutes or so, we will get to questions and answers. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line if you guys would like to get involved in the show. I tend to agree with Randy. That's the side that I'm on. There's nothing that can really happen over the next 10 games that would alter my direction if I'm in Doug Armstrong's shoes. That being said, Kerry Davis took the other side on this. What if they end up having some success in their next 10 games? Here's what Kerry Davis had to say earlier today. They have 10 games when they return to March 2nd. Let's say they go 8-2 and two in that stretch. Is that worse than going 2-8 and eight for them? Because now... You're in a. You, you put yourself. You, you go eight and two. You're probably back in a situation where you're in playoff contention. If you go eight and two and you are in playoff, I am never of the thought process. You don't just, in my opinion, if you get to that point, 
You can't just say, okay, the hell with it. You guys played well. Now we're going to tear it off. We're going to tear it up. We're going we're, we're, we're to shut it down because we know we don't, we don't believe that we can win a championship. You don't know. Nobody knows. Anything can happen in the playoffs. Anything can happen in the playoffs where this team ain't winning a Stanley Cup. They're just not. And so even if they go 8-2 and two over their next 10 games, nothing changes for me. My expectation now is that you sell off whatever you have for the best price possible. And the reason being is because this team has already proven to you who they are. They have gone on stretches this year, this year, where we have thought, okay, may- maybe there's something here. I mean, they went on the seven-game winning streak earlier in the season. They have gone on stretches where you played well against Vegas and Toronto, and you were able to beat Colorado and Vegas in back-to-back games. Like, we've seen this team play well. They beat New Jersey on the road. They beat Toronto on the road. They had an outstanding road trip. And then it became the same thing over again. We've gone through this vicious cycle too many times this year to fall for it once again. So for me... No matter what happens in the next 10 games, you're still the team that through the first 51 games was 22nd goals for per game, 26th in goals allowed per game, and 25th overall in points percentage. That's who you are. Eventually, your record is what you are, and that's what they are right now. They're a slightly below 500 team that deserves to be have the spare pieces sold off. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I don't think they can do anything in their next 10 games. I'll, I'll even take it a step further. I think they win 10 in a row. I still think Army's selling at the deadline. Like, I, they're just at that point. Like, a 10-game winning streak, that's 20 points. They might be able to slide up towards that wild card spot. They might even be in the wild card spot. But you just look at this team. They're not winning a Stanley Cup. So I, I think you have to sell off as much as possible. And I'm not saying, like, you just sell it off no matter what. Like, hey, I just got to get this out of the house. I got to get rid of this thing. No, you don't get a good offer for, say, Nola Chari. Then you keep him. And you, you look to potentially extend him when you get the, when you get the chance. Or if you don't get a great offer for up throwing Thomas Grice out here, you just hang on to Thomas Grice. It's not like he's a massive Asset loss at the end of the season. So, but I, I do think you have to look to sell off these pieces. They are they are not in a position to hold on to these guys, even if they go eight and two, nine and one, ten and zero, because they just have two valuable of assets that could walk for free at the end of the season. So, I'm with you. I'm at the point now where they've they've told you who they are. They they played into this sell mode by going on a five game losing streak right before the All Star break. So, I think you have to sell off as many of your pieces as you possibly can as we get closer to the March third trade deadline. Also, there's just they're not going into <laughs> like this is the other thing that we I, have to kind of come to say. terms with is like what are the odds that they actually go into or I mean let's be let's not be ridiculous five here. and five T- ten and zero oh, like a ten game winning streak oh. it's not happening man Th- this team does not have this yeah, that I, in I them. got a better chance of walking outside and seeing a pig fly today than it, that it's not happening and like. You look at the schedule that's coming up Arizona sure maybe you take advantage of nah, that the, Florida's nah, not playing that. well. But then you get into some quality opponents, New Jersey, Colorado, Carolina, Pittsburgh, Seattle. It, this is just not a stretch that you're going to be able to take advantage of because they they have proven over time that this is the team that they are. They're a team that is going to be a, a top 10 type of pick. I mean, right now, I, I think I looked at this last night. They're like eighth in the draft lottery right All now. Right. So if you're looking at what is more likely, this team getting back into the playoff mix or this team getting closer into the top five of the draft, crazy enough, it's it's probably the top five in the draft. And those teams are really bad. Like, you got to catch San Jose and listen, they've done a lot of tanking ahead of you. But 
I mean, if the Blues are bad enough down the stretch, they could get into that Montreal, Vancouver, San Jose type of range. Yeah, I'm with you there. I think it is more likely, too, that they end up getting in that top five than they can turn this around because they've already had their chance to turn it around. They just haven't been able to. And, you know, with Alex being in Florida, I I think we can kind of do this if we're on the same page here to where we can just put a little bow on this. (laughs) Are we allowed to do this when Alex is out? I think so. Yeah, Uh, he wouldn't allow it if he was here. You know, it was fun while it lasted, O'Reilly, Vladdy. But some are saying, you know, we've come to the end of the road. And it's time we go separate directions. Yeah. Just sing it with me. Uh. What's just happened there? <laughs> Turn it off. Turn it off. We can't do this while he's out. I can't do it. Um, somebody on the text line, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 636. Guys, you don't know how to follow or live with a team with some emotion. You guys need to put more into this. The Blues could still get this back on track. Man, I was living and dying with this team early in the season. They went on that uh, winning streak to, t- to open up the year, and Alex was telling me about how it was the best defensive effort he's seen from the Blues in quite some time, and the Edmonton game was the best that he's seen the Blues play. Like We were excited, and then they go on that losing streak, and Doug Armstrong comes out and says, hey, I maybe this team's bad, maybe they're underperforming, we're not sure, but we need to find out. And I said after that, that was, I think after seven losses in a row during this eight-game losing streak to open up the year, it's like, we're 10 games into the season. Yeah, I was going to say, that was when the like red alarm bells were going off for me. If you're 10, what was it, 11 games in after the eight-game losing streak? And mine weren't. Like At that point in time, I, my response was, this seems really early to be having these kinds of conversations about the Blues. And let's be honest, Doug Armstrong saw what we have now all come to understand, which is this is heading in the wrong direction, and there might not be a way back on track. And then they won seven games in a row, and we were like, okay, you know what? Maybe there's a little something here. They beat Colorado. They beat Vegas. We all loved the the way that they performed in those games. And then it just became more of the same. The defensive issues reared their ugly head. They had some injury issues there. You had some players stepping up, but it was it was unsustainable. And now, given where we're at with this team, I'm I'm sorry. Like maybe maybe I'm not totally involved or engaged the way that I once was, and the way that some of you guys are, but. I can't be emotionally invested in this team right now. They haven't earned that from me. I mean, by the time they get back from the All-Star break alone, they, they not only do they have the All-Star break, they've also got their week off right after. Both Colorado, or all three teams ahead of them, Colorado, Calgary, Nashville, are going to play a, a handful of games. I think Nashville only plays two, so not as many. But they're going to play a couple of games. They can be 10 points out by the time you even get to the conversation of when the Blues resume play. And that that's five wins for the Blues, but again, those teams are playing at a better than 500 clip, and in that 10-game stretch that we just mentioned, that's where even with eight wins, I, I think you're looking at maybe you gain like two, three, four points, and that's it. Like They're not going to... I can't picture them closing the gap massively on the teams that they're behind in a 10-game stretch. Somebody from the 618 brings up a, what I think is a, a fair point that it happens with the Cardinals, and it happened for a decade with the Cardinals, and I think it's what's happening right now with the Blues said, I realize it's later in the season, but after seeing what we all saw in 2019, I have a hard time quitting on them again this year. I think the 2011 Cardinals and the 2019 Blues in some ways are the worst things to happen to this town when it comes to following sports. And the reason why I say that, like, obviously it's a magical run and you would never trade it for the world. But the reason why I say that in the long term is because 
it always makes you feel like you're in it, even when you're not. And like, if you're Doug Armstrong, you can't be thinking that way because so much had to happen for you to be able to get back on track. You changed your coach. You got a goalie who had one of the greatest second halves of a season that we've ever seen. And certainly here in St. Louis that we've ever seen locally. And everything came together around that. What's changing this year to push them on that trajectory? I mean, there's nothing. They're not firing Baruby the way that they did with Mike Yo that year. And who is your Baruby if you did? You don't have somebody like that within the system right now. Who is the equivalent to Jordan Bennington in 2019? I, I don't think that exists right now within their system. You just, that's not happening again. And that's what made 2019 so special is that you could never expect it then. And you shouldn't expect it now. I understand that it was special, and I understand that that is something that for us is in our mind's eye at all times, but don't expect that again because that's not that's not reality. Yeah, to that texture's point, I, I understand where they're coming from, but I, I've kind of learned to accept the fact that that was just a once-in-like-100-year kind of occurrence for both that 2011 World Series run for the Cardinals and that 19 Cup run for the Blues to where, okay, I saw it once. It's probably not ever going to happen again, at least maybe in my lifetime or once in like a hundred years because it just never does. I mean, there's not many stories that occur like that in sports. So it's why I've just learned to accept, okay, I saw it happen once. I really doubt that's actually going to happen. It's about again. playing the odds. Like if you, if you play the lottery, right? I don't know if you play it or not, Tanner, but I'm sure some people in our, in our listening audience do like if you play the lottery and you do it every day and then suddenly it hits, that doesn't mean that by continuing to play the lottery that you're going to be able to end up winning the next week, right? Or, hey, I got a lottery ticket at 4 o'clock on a Thursday, and that's when I won it the following day. doesn't mean you just go on a Thursday every week to be able to get it. That's, that's not necessarily the way that it's going to work out. Like, I, I play a lot of daily fantasy, right, on Sundays during the NFL season. Just because I put a wide receiver in the flex spot and won the Millie Maker one week, that doesn't mean that the next week, if I do the same thing, it's going to work out the same way. You got to play the odds, and this team, the odds are against them right now. You are currently eighth in the NHL draft lottery, and you have a 6% chance to get the number one overall pick. Those are the odds that are in your favor far more than trying to get back into the playoff picture. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll get to questions and answers. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. But coming up next, that did not go the way that SLU was expecting last night. They had finally got back into the NCAA tournament picture. That game might have been the one that does them in in terms of an at-large appearance. We'll talk about that and get the other local teams. Illinois, Mizzou, college basketball whip around coming up next. You're on 101 ESPN. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN with Alex out. That means that we get to talk college basketball today, T-Bone. 
Oh, we can't do the end of the robot where you can just throw them under the bus that's here. Right. Yeah, that's wow. that's the way this works. Uh, last night, SLU and Illinois were both in action. Mizzou back in action tonight. We'll talk about them coming up here in just a moment. But I want to start with SLU, Tanner, because I saw a lot of hype coming off of their wins against, you know, the the difficult opponents in St. Bonaventure and George Mason and George Washington, Loyola, Chicago, LaSalle and Davidson. When you win, when you have a winning streak like that going, like it's, it's hard not to get excited, but you, you started hearing a little bit of hype of them potentially getting back into the NCAA tournament mix. And it's understandable, honestly, because the bubble is weaker this year than it has been uh, in previous years. And last night you lose on the road at Fordham. Tanner, this is their fourth loss this year, third loss this year against a legitimately poor level of opponent. They lose to SIUE, who is 224th in Ken Palm. You lose to UMass, who's 152nd. And now you lose this one against Fordham, who's 140th in Ken Palm. You are now sitting at 85 in Ken Palm. And when you look at the resume, yes, you have some high-level quality wins against Memphis and Providence so far this year. I think that last night, and I had said this after the UMass game, but I, I definitely think it's true now, that basically put an end to their at-large bid conversation, and now it becomes a question of, can you win the A-10? Can, can you win the tournament? And this this conference is not particularly great right now. I mean, you've got VCU and Dayton who are okay, and SLU who's kind of in that same conversation. But to me, last night put an end to the getting back into the at-large conversations for SLU. Yeah, I, I I thought they were already out at, the, at that point in the at large conversation. I know they had picked up some momentum with a with a winning streak and all that. But Lenardi had him in I, in his I, most recent bracketology. I, I think he had them in. I could be wrong because of the automatic qualifier because they were sitting alone of top of first in the A ten. Gotcha. Uh, but I to me they they have no shot at an at large bid. I didn't I didn't think they had it already before the loss last night. But it's just because their conference is so weak and they never picked up that big win that they really needed. Auburn would have been that big win that they needed and they lost that game. The Providence win is starting to look a little bit better now. For Providence sure. is a really good team in the Big East. Uh, but, yeah, they at this point it just comes down to they have to win the A-10. I was flabbergasted they got just a vote in the AP Top 25 in the latest rankings. They're not going to get that after the loss last night. But, yeah, it comes down to the A-10. They're going to have to win the A-10 tournament. They're going to have to play playoff basketball the moment they get to that A-10 tournament, which I believe is in Brooklyn, if I'm not mistaken. So, But yeah, they, they have no shot in that large bit. It just comes down to they've got to find a way to beat the top teams in the A-10. It's unfortunate, too, because this is a team that you bring back most of your talent. You're able to get Yuri Collins back. You've got a very experienced team overall. And for whatever reason, it just has not come together this year the way that they were expecting it to. And some of that is defensively. They're not the team that they thought they were going to be. They've been pretty efficient on the offensive end of things. But I mean, you, you look at the way that they performed in some of these losses, it just it has not come together for them. And I can't explain it. I, I think that Travis Ford overall is a, a pretty solid coach. Um, but it, it feels like and we've talked about this both on and off air, Tanner, just when you start to buy in to the teams that he's had at SLU, there's a reason to pull back a little bit. Like he gives you just enough reason for optimism like he did after the Memphis win. And then you lose to Maryland. Then you win against Providence. Then you lose the game against Auburn. Then you lose against Iona and Boise. It's like there, there's just enough reason for optimism. And then they 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 they, tear, they break your heart 
somehow is kind of been the theme so far in his time at SLU. All right, Illinois, they were in action last night. You were texting us furiously at halftime because oh, you I was losing my were mind. sick of watching them shoot three-pointers. How do they change the course yesterday? Because they end up winning that game by 16 points. They win it going away. How would they alter the course of that game in your mind? It was around the 11-minute mark of the second half in which Underwood called a timeout after Wisconsin, or excuse me, Nebraska went on a little bit of a run, and they just started going to the paint. And, and that's what they need to do. And they played solid defense. They're going to win games based on their defense. They're a great defensive team. Mm-hmm. They block shots at a really good rate. I think they're best in the Big Ten at that. I think I heard something last night that they block – it's either 5% or 15% of all shots that go up 15%. this year. Yeah, they're they're a really good team defensively. Offensively, they just struggle to shoot from outside. I mean, last night at one point, I texted you guys, and it was right around that 11-minute mark in the second half where 51% of their shots were coming from three-point range, and they had only made four of them. They went into the game last night ranked 270th in the country in three-point percentage, and after last night's game, they dropped all the way down to 304th out of 363 mm. teams. And the frustrating part is is you can kind of lull this Illinois team to settling for those shots because when the game changed early before that second-half moment where they just ran away with it was Nebraska went to a zone, the Illini got impatient and started just shooting or were, weren't patient enough and were settling for their three-point shots. Mike Myers, great. Th- he's a good shooter, but he's really the only shooter on the team. You had Shannon throwing up threes. You had Epps throwing up threes. You can kind of lull this team into settling for those shots. And if you do, you're going to hang around in games like that. They were a 14-point favorite in that game in Nebraska. That that game should not have been as close as it was at the 11-minute mark in the second half. So their, their, their shooting is going to end up being their downfall. I, I think they're at best in this year's tournament. I mean, we talk about Mizzou ceiling all the time. Yep. I think the ceiling for the Illini is they might be able to get to the Sweet 16. And it'll be based on their defense because offensively, they just don't shoot the ball well enough to go on a sustained run in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I just... They've got the the interior presence that you're looking for from a team that can maybe go on a little bit of a run. I, I don't know that they have the guard play uh, that you typically would expect going into a tournament to be able, especially with their outside shooting, uh, to be able to go on any kind of a run. They're, they're very good defensively, and I will give credit where it is due to Brad Underwood. I think they had a bit of a crisis when it came to their identity midway through the season coming off of the Missouri and the Northwestern losses. They finally figured it out. They figured out who they are as a team and what they needed to lean on. Now, I, I'm i with you. I would like to see them shoot fewer three-pointers. I think that's just part of how, how college basketball is now, though. Teams are trying to make you shoot it from the outside. But when they, when they are getting the ball inside, they're working the offense, and they make it difficult for opponents defensively, that's when they're at their best. So... Uh, they're they're a solid team, but they are not the same team that they have been in previous years. On Missouri, we know exactly who they are. They're going to shoot the ball. When they shoot the ball well, they're very good. When they aren't hitting their outside shots, they're going to struggle. Their next three games, these are basically can't-lose games. LSU at home, you got to win this game. LSU is one of the two probably worst teams in the SEC this year. Mississippi State on the road, that's one of those games where Ken Palm thinks that they have a, a t- t- like a less than 50% chance of winning that game. Here's the entire list of games so far this season in conference play that Mississippi State has won. Home against Ole Miss, home against uh, TCU, which was in that Big 12 SEC challenge. I still don't know how they won that game in overtime. And then South Carolina, who is the worst team in the conference. This is a game you should win. So the next three, and then you've got South Carolina uh, at home as well. They're 
they're horrible, absolutely atrocious. These next three games, if you're a Missouri team that is trying to get that seating up, you want to get back into the top 25. In my opinion, these are games you can't lose. You got to be able to come away with three straight wins here. I'm with you there because they got that big win that we we were talking about all year long where they they got the top 25 win that they needed. You can't have any hiccups though that kind of erase that where you have these games that you're talking about where you've got the bottom dwellers in the SEC in your next three. You have to take care of business. Right now, Mizzou got that big win they needed. They can always add another one of those in the top 25. They're going to have a couple on-the-road opportunities coming up here uh, shortly down the stretch of the regular season. They just can't have those hiccup games because those hiccup games can be the ones that end up really biting you when it comes to the selection com- committee when they look at your resume. Because you can look at Ken Palm, you can look at net rating rankings. There are times when the team, some teams have higher Ken Palm or higher net rankings, and they end up not getting in because they've got some bad yep. losses on their resume. So if you're Missouri, you just have to avoid that take care of business. Yeah, it's the season is now more about avoiding the bad losses than it is about getting the big wins. Like if you lose against Tennessee on the road, that's fine. There's no harm, no foul in that game. If you lose on the road at Auburn, fine. So does everybody else. You're good there. What you can't have is a loss at home against South Carolina or tonight at home against LSU. Those are the types of games you just simply cannot lose at this point in your season if you're Mizzou. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, Kyle Reese. I think he's one of the best prospect writers out there. He writes about the Cardinals prospects for Birds on the Black. We'll talk to him coming up in about 15 minutes or so about the Cardinals prospects. A lot of the top 100 lists are coming out right now. But coming up next, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text 314-399-9646. PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by James Carlton with State Farm. Have drivers under 25 on your insurance? Save hundreds of dollars a year with CarltonInsurance.net. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. Let's start with this from the 314. Hey guys, do you think that Robert Thomas will ever be as good defensively as Ryan O'Reilly was for the Blues? Uh, no, no, I do not. And I don't think that that is a shot against Robert Thomas. I also think he will be better offensively than what Ryan O'Reilly was with the Blues. So I think overall, counteracts one per, one player succeeded in one area, another succeeds in another. Um, they're very different players. But no, I don't think that he's ever going to be what Ryan O'Reilly was defensively. Yeah, that's where I am. I, I, I think he'll kind of offset that difference defensively where he won't get to that level of Ryan O'Reilly by being better offensively. But, I, I mean, we haven't seen signs of it yet that he's gotten close to the level of where Ryan O'Reilly is, where he's that shutdown forward. So I, I can't see him getting to the Ryan O'Reilly level. Will he close the gap maybe a little bit over the next handful of years? Yeah, I think so. I think he'll continue to grow to as defensively, but I, I don't think he'll ever get to the point where he's Ryan O'Reilly. Uh, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers from the 314. Hey, guys, what is your favorite moment, year, or season from Tom Brady? Do you have a favorite moment, game, year? What comes to, to mind for you, Tanner, when you think Tom Brady's career? Leaping guy stole a couple one Super Bowls <laughs> from the Rams. That's the first one that comes to mind. Um I don't know if I really have a game that stands out. 28 to 3 memory. for me. 
that was that was to me the crowning achievement yeah, where you knew it. like there is no longer a conversation. It is Tom Brady is the best quarterback to ever play the game, and whoever you want to throw out there is second or worse. So for me, that that was the game that I, I think it determined the the future for him. Yeah, I, I think that game Coming probably stands that. out to me because I don't remember a lot of him early in his career. I remember more of the later years in New England. That game stands out to me. I, I also remember that game just, just being like, holy crap, I can't believe Atlanta's gotten to this point where they've they've blown this game. I, I think also the game that stands out to me is probably he didn't win the football game, but it was unbelievable that they even got back into the conversation of that game was the last season when they came back and tied it with the Rams in that, uh, I can't remember if it was wild card or divisional round. Divisional round, I think. But, I mean, that was impressive in itself. I mean, Tom Brady was throwing the deep hole like crazy. He was hitting his targets. made an incredible comeback. Again, they ended up falling short and losing that football game. But that was an incredible performance for a guy that was 45 years old. Another one that immediately comes to mind, and again, it, it happened in a loss, and this is the funny thing about him, is like I think some of his best performances in the playoffs have actually come in losses. The Philly Super Bowl... He was unbelievable, dude. He was amazing in that game. He finished with 500 yards through the air, three touchdowns, no picks, and was somehow outplayed by the Eagles and specifically by Nick Foles. So I, it's one of the better games that he's played in the, in a postseason. Like, for example, he was better against Philly in that Super Bowl than he was against the Rams in their Super Bowl in 2019. But he won the Rams one and lost the Philly one. So it's funny how these things end up working out. Uh, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. Uh, From the 636, guys, do you think that Patrick Mahomes will end up in the same conversation as some of the other guys that you were talking about right behind Tom Brady? So Elway, Manning, Montana those guys uh yeah I, I think that's kind of the range that he'll be in by the time that his career comes to an end i agree I, I think he can get there i think he can get like three four super bowls in his career i mean when you start getting in that conversation of seven that's where it comes to what you were saying earlier where you're chasing ghosts where it's it's hard to picture picture anybody ever getting back up to seven super bowls but three four i i could see that because I, I think patrick mahomes is going to be the best quarterback in the league for the next 10 15 years i think there's gonna be guys right there up with him joe burrow's clearly close to that same level right now uh josh allen if he ends up not turning the football over to be in that conversation justin herbert trevor lawrence guys like that but yeah i I can see where he can finish with around that three two three four super bowl range yeah i i think he is kind of the modern version of john elway I think that's probably the closest comparison that you can go with he's he's got some john elway i know people have compared him to brett Favre. i think he the biggest difference between he and Brett Favre is that Mahomes just doesn't have those turnover-worthy plays. Um, and then Aaron Rodgers is another one if you're looking more modern. I mean, we've all seen what Rodgers was as a player. So those those are the three guys that kind of play most similarly to him. I, you could throw maybe like Fran Tarkenton into that mix as well. Uh, from the 309, guys, since Bo Horvat went to the Islanders, who is the best shooter now in your opinion for Vladimir Tarasenko? This is a question we talked about yesterday with Mike Rupp. He brought up the Carolina Hurricanes. I I still continue to believe that's probably the best spot for him. Tanner, is there anybody that immediately comes to mind for you? Carolina was the first one because the Pacsoretti injury. Did I get it right? Pacsoretti? You were close. Damn it. I knew that too. But uh, yeah, Carolina makes sense. I I still think the Rangers. The Rangers continue to be connected to him. I I think Mike Rubb said yesterday when he was with us, you know, if they miss out on Kane, and Kane's got a really big cap hit, then Tarasenko's probably who they pivot towards. So to me, it's... 
the Rangers, and it is Carolina. Those are probably the top two that come to mind when it comes to Vladdy. Uh, from the 314, final thing here. Guys, do you think that Jalen Hurts will end up becoming a guy that goes to four or five Super Bowls because of how down the NFC is right now? Could he be the one that takes advantage? I did this a few years ago. Same team, different quarterback. When the Eagles made it to the Super Bowl with Nick Foles, and that was the year that Carson Wentz was like the next big thing, right? But he goes down with the injury. I thought that Eagles team was going to be the one that dominated the NFC for the next five years. What I learned coming off of that, and I mean, we've learned this a million different times. It's just so hard to predict what the next five years of the NFL is going to look like. I mean, five years from now, that would have been 2018. I wouldn't have been talking about the Bengals or the Jaguars or the Chiefs probably as being the dominant teams in the AFC at this point in time. And yet here we are, the Bills. I wouldn't have been talking about them because of Josh Allen. Those are the teams that won their respective division. So it's, it is so hard to project five years from now. If there was one team that could do it, I would say it is probably the Eagles. But I, I don't know how I could possibly have a whole lot of confidence in that. Yeah, I'm with you. It's so hard to predict because I, I just don't know who's going to. Somebody could be drafted like the fourth round as a quarterback. Nobody's thinking of him. He ends up becoming the next best thing in the NFC. So it's hard to predict. I, I could potentially see where the Eagles are that because I think Jalen Hurts is the answer. They've got their quarter or they've got their head coach in place in Sirianni. They've got their top wideout locked up in AJ Brown. So I could listen to the argument, but things are going to change as you, especially once uh, Jalen Hurts gets his new deal, which could be around $50 million. <laughs> That's going to change the equation of how they have to build that team. I, I can understand where that texture is coming from, though. I, I could sure. I could kind of envision the scenario, but it's just so hard to predict the future in the NFL. I would also be curious to see where Caleb Williams goes. If he ends up in the NFC on a good team, He's a superstar, man. I See, I love him. He like the next uh, can't miss pick like Josh yeah. Rosen. No, I mean, he's different. He's so much better. Than I just Josh brought Rosen him up because I remember you told me you were really high on Josh so Rosen. High on Josh Rosen. I thought he was going to be special. The chosen one. Chosen Rosen did not work out the way that I was anticipating. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, Randy said something interesting earlier today that the Blues need to start developing, drafting and developing the way that they once did. Is that the path forward? Or is it better to trade those picks for proven players if the Blues end up going down the sell mode at the deadline? We'll get into that coming up at 1215. But next, Kyle Reese, he writes about the Cardinals prospects for a website called Birds on the Black. I think he's excellent at this work. He watches a lot of these prospects more than national analysts do. want to get his thoughts on some of the big ones that could be coming up, including the guys that we don't talk as much about that could impact the Cardinals in 2023. I'm talking Moises Gomez. I'm talking Alec Burleson. We'll just Discuss that with Kyle Reese next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. And I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll get back into the Blues. Are they in draft and develop mode, or it's going to make more sense for them to use those picks that they get at the deadline to be able to flip them for proven players? We'll get to that coming up at 12:15. But right now, we're going out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line to be joined by Kyle Reese. He writes about the Cardinals prospects for a website called Birds on the Black. You can follow him on Twitter. He's at Kyle R four one six. 
all the national prospects analysts, they get to see the Cardinals prospects occasionally, especially down at the Arizona Fall League. Kyle watches them like every single night, so he has a better grasp on a lot of these players than most of the national people that you will see conversing about them. Kyle, we appreciate the time as always, man. How you doing today? I'm doing well, BK. It's a pleasure to be on. I love talking it over with you. Absolutely. We're happy to have you. And as I'm sure you've been seeing over the last couple of days, everybody's putting out their top 100 prospects list. So uh, the big conversations that are being had by Cardinals fans are the same ones that we've been having for a couple of years now with Jordan Walker, who's in basically the top 15 at a minimum on every one of these top 100 lists. Kyle, from what you saw from him last year when he was down in double A for the majority of the season, what was the biggest sign or development that you saw? Was there anything in particular that stood out to you with Jordan Walker's game last year compared to what you had seen previously? You know, he was so well-developed in 2021 at Palm Beach. I think I was most impressed to see him stay within himself at AA, just like he did uh, at, at you know, the, the A-plus level during 2021. He, he knows who he is. And to be that young and that advanced, and to stick to your plan at the plate and to see that happen at double A, where the challenge is very difficult. Uh, jumping from high A to double A is a huge task. So jumping from low A to double A is even even more hard to understand for your average fan. Like he was just himself. I think as the season progressed at the plate, the thing that we saw him do more than he had done in the past is turn on the inside pitch. He has a swing that's designed basically to work gap to gap, you know, for being a, a big guy who might be known for his power. He's, he's more of a hitter than he is a power prospect. And I think that that's kind of one of the mis- misconceptions of him, but his swing is meant to work gap to gap. It's meant to fight off some tough pitches inside and find the opposite gap. And what we saw by the end of the year is we saw him turn on those pitches a little bit more frequently, those breaking pitches inside those fastballs on his hand and drive them a little bit more, which for a 20-year-old at the AA level with the type of power and potential that he has is a huge sign and a huge positive. Kyle, with that being said, talking about his swing, have you seen anything to show that he has any holes in his swing? You know, I think of Nolan Gorman when he was here last year, struggled with fastballs up in the zone. Is there anything like that that you've seen with Jordan Walker? It's it's a throwaway thing because we're going to talk about this with every teenage to 20 to 22-year-old right-handed prospect. He definitely has issues with breaking pitches low and outside. That is, you know, especially the more advanced breaking pitches low and outside. Now, you don't see that many of those at AA. And he definitely didn't see a lot of those type advanced breaking pitches uh, at, at the low levels of the minors. But we saw some of those more advanced breaking pitches, early in counts, late in counts, uh, those sweeping sliders specifically. We saw him really have trouble with that. Uh, I I gif during the season. I, I gif as much of the, the highlights as I can. And I wanted to make a point to try to put a little bit more video out there of some of his struggles. And I never got around to it, but uh, one of the great follows on, uh, on Twitter is VHS. And he has a, a video out there of a struggle of, of uh, Jordan Walker struggling to hit a slider. That is, you know, maybe a foot off the plate. He's just, he was just a little over aggressive. And, and that is an area that he'll need to improve. You know, he, He's at the belay and he's 20 years old and he'll you know either be in the Cardinal or a Memphis Redbird at 21. And he's just going to have to learn when to maybe be a little bit more selective about that pitch.
So it reminds me a lot of Dylan Carlson when he first came up in 2020. Now, that was a weird year for a million different reasons, and we don't have to get into all of that. But when he first came up, they were throwing him junk, right? They were barely even throwing him fastballs, and he he struggled at times against them. And he had very similar numbers. I know, Kyle, this is something that you pointed out uh, to a lot of your followers as well. But the numbers in A between Dylan Carlson and Jordan Walker were remarkably similar. Carlson dominated at that level. It, it, do you think it is fair to expect some early struggles from Jordan Walker when he comes up because he's 20 years old? I, you know, I do. I, as as, uh, as incredible of a talent as he is and as advanced as he is for his age, I do think that, you know, what we saw specifically with Dylan Carlson were those change-ups, right? It wasn't even just junk. It was those major league change-ups. And I feel like in all of these years watching the minor leagues, you know, breaking pitches are one thing. Fastball is another thing. Command is a whole other thing. But the major difference is a major league changeup is such a different beast altogether. And you don't see a major league changeup really until you get to the major leagues. You know, you, you'll see some really great stuff elsewhere in the minor leagues. It, it's just few and far between. But that, that next level changeup, every major leaguer struggles with. Like even, even the advanced, the advanced, uh, minor leaguers making a major league debut with, with the advanced hit tools like Juan Yepes and even Brendan Donovan, that changeup is a whole different beast. And until a player makes that adjustment, until they see it at the major league level, you never really know how they're going to adapt to it. Um, the, the thing about Jordan Walker, I, I don't think he's going to struggle with the changeup the same way that Dylan, Dylan Carlson did because I think his swing is a little bit, it's a little bit more defensive in nature than Carlson was at the age of 20 uh, at, you know, at the same levels. Uh, I think I think the difference is where where Jordan Walker he just hits the ball so hard you know whether it be his 90th percentage exit velocity his average exit velocity or his top of the line exit velocity he's going to get away with being able to make weaker contact because it's going to be harder by nature and I think that's going to help him kind of sort through some of the early season struggles that he has whenever he makes his major league debut. Kyle, you were mentioning pitcher stuff, so I want to switch to some of the Cardinals' pitching prospects. And the guys that are drawing a lot of buzz right now are Gordon Graceffo and Tink Hintz. The yeah. biggest conversation with the Cardinals this offseason was, you know, the ace conversation, looking for an ace on the market. Can Jack Flaherty be that guy? My question for you is, do you think one of these guys, Graceffo, Hintz, or maybe somebody else in the system, can develop into being the ace for the Cardinals in the future? I am always reluctant to say ace, right? Like, in my mind, I'm one of these crazy fans who thinks that an ace like there's only five aces in the league i, I definitely think graceffo and hence and then another pitcher we're not talking a lot about is cooper jerpy the cardinals first round draft pick in 2022 i think those three guys specifically have the chance to be top of the rotation starters uh, i i think with Tink hence as we'll get a better feel for this as he builds up his uh his endurance and we see him get a few more innings on that arm i think he probably has a chance to be what we might traditionally defined as an ace. I think Gordon Graceffo is going to be a workhorse. I think you're looking at, you know, just to kind of be lazy about it. I think you're talking about a Lance Lynn type career from him. I think he's going to strike out more guys. Obviously he has more velocity. He doesn't throw 14 different fastballs. It's a, it's a full repertoire of uh, a change up curve slider, but he's going to be a workhorse. Uh, and then Cooper Jerpy is such, such a unique pitcher. He releases the ball at a different angle. Uh, no one else measures the way that he measures. And just by the, the nature of being such a unique pitcher with the stuff that he has and his ability to understand modern technology and also 
like the old school bulldog mentality, just like Graceffo of, of how to pitch uh, and having a plan and executing that plan. I think that he could be a whole different beast. But for me, it comes down to those three. They, all three have the potential to be top of the line, top of the rotation starters. All three have the chance to be a team's quote-unquote ace. I don't think any of them are going to be Jacob DeGrom. I don't think any of them are going to be Max Scherzer or a pitcher that we might traditionally view as an ace. Uh, but I think that at the very least, all three will be middle-of-the-rotation arms. And we haven't said that about pitchers in the past. Like Even Matthew Libertor, I was one of the people who said, yeah, he's probably got a ceiling of a middle of the rotation and maybe even probably a back of the rotation. I'm usually hedged in that way. And those three guys are on an island of their own in the organization. I think we had the conversation last year when we were talking around this time about Steven Matz. Like, would you sign up for Matthew Libertor to have Steven Matz's career? And you're like, yeah, absolutely. Like, that's a really good career for Matthew Libertor. And I did want to ask you about Libertor once again. Somebody on our text line asked, what's his role with the Cardinals this year? I think that's really hard to define right now because they do have so many starters in front of him in the pecking order. And then you look to the bullpen and they've just got a lot of guys back there that seem to have defined roles right now. Kyle, not even necessarily asking you about his role, but when you look at the pitcher that he was a year ago, what would you like to see him improve upon? Or maybe what was the difference between him down in AAA at the end of the year versus at the big leagues? Was there anything that made you confident that he can get this thing turned around? One thing we've heard the Cardinals say, and we've heard we heard uh, Matthew talk about it at winter warm-up, he kept talking about his command. And honestly, like he said, he, his goal, now he's hitting his spot about eight out of every 10 times, where in the past it was hitting his spot six out of every 10 times. I disagree. I, I think that command is fine. I think, uh, granted, you know, you want your pitchers to have as good of command of their stuff as possible. For me, those fastballs are the issue. The sinker and his, his heater, his four-seamer, it, they both need to change. They're not, they're not good enough as they are. They're not, they're not they're not, they don't move the way that they need to move to be major league effective unless he's throwing his fastball, both of, both of those pitches, unless he's throwing them into the mid or high 90s. And if he's not doing that, then they lose a tremendous amount of effectiveness. And what we saw at the end of 2021 when he was really putting it all together at Memphis, we saw that velocity was consistently and deep into starts between like 94 and 97 miles an hour. And in 2022, we hardly saw that. And he pitches with an edge when he's like, you can tell in his attitude and his body and his body language, he's, he exudes confidence. And when he exudes confidence, he dials it up a little bit. And that was gone all last year. Uh, the little, the fiery lefty that I would watch in 2021 who would let up a huge Homer and then get really angry about it and then correct some of his mistakes that was gone in 2022. So for me, the, the difference is, his velocity was down, uh, specifically late in starts. Uh, and when I say late, I mean even three three innings deep, which is uncommon. And also, like, he wasn't the bulldog. He wasn't the animal on the mound that we used to watch. And that's such a throwaway thing, you know, that maybe maybe we're even spending a little too much time talking about. But he, those were the things that were missing from Matthew Libertor, uh, which are things that he needs because those fastballs just aren't good enough to be middle of the rotation at the major league level. Kyle, one pitcher that I'm I'm fascinated by just looking at his baseball reference page and reading up on his backstory, and he's an under-the-radar prospect, and he's a bullpen arm. But I'm curious what you saw from Ryan Lutas in the minors last yeah. year. Rose up through three levels from high A to triple A, and then they sent him to the Arizona Fall League as well, and now he's got a non-roster invite to spring training. What can you tell us about him, and do you think he's a guy that could factor into the Cardinals' bullpen at some point this season? You know, Tanner, I've got to tell you, I am fascinated by the Cardinals' current 
group of relief pitching prospects. This is something I never thought I would say. You know, back in the day, it was only starters that failed as starters that became relievers of the Major League bullpen. And the Cardinals have kind of found this little market efficiency with relief pitchers that they draft or sign as undrafted free agents. And then they have like a group of five to ten of these guys, specifically right-handers, that might make a Major League debut within the next 12 to 18 months. And Laudis is one of those guys. You know, he has a great story. Uh, everybody's written about it. Rob Raines uh, wrote about it. A great article about Laudis' story. You know, went to Wash U locally. Um, the last year before he, he graduated from Wash U and the Cardinals signed him as an undrafted free agent, he really dedicated himself to understanding the technology and the biometrics of, of throwing. And then miraculously, he went from throwing 88, between 92 and 88. And all of a sudden, he was throwing in the high 90s and engineering a, a slider and a curveball. He throws his curveball a little bit too much, but uh, so he blew through the lower levels and even double A. And then when he got to triple A, he really struggled with this fastball. His fastball, again, high 90s, 96 to 99, uh, but it's kind of a flat pitch. And we saw him get beat around a little bit at triple A because the triple A hitters, the older triple A hitters who have been career minor leaguers, they, they knew it was coming. They've seen better moving fastballs and they kind of jumped on it. But what I know about Laudis is he's he's back in the lab. He spent all summer or all winter rather working to re-engineer these pitches so that he can reach his next level, which would be a major league bullpen arm. In in my write up of him over at Birds on the Black, I I was quick to say that like right now in my mind, Laudis is a lot like former Cardinals legend Mitch Harris. Hmm. I think I think that there is there is a lot of combo there where. These are two guys with unusual circumstance. You know, Mitch Harris was uh, part of the Navy. His career started late because of it. Uh, not really loudest thing, but they're both great stories and great people who work extremely hard uh, in the face of adversity to eventually make a major league debut. And when Mitch Harris made his major league debut, he had a really great first season and then kind of fell off and had some arm issues after that. And that probably changed his career trajectory. I think that's the kind of arm that Ryan Loudis is going to be. I think He's going to be one of those valuable right-handed arms that spend some time between Memphis and St. Louis uh, up and down throughout the entire year and who fills some valuable innings and maybe gets exposed a little bit, but will be just another great depth piece for the Cardinals with the potential to be more somewhere down the line. Kyle Reese is our guest right now here on 101 ESPN. You can find his work over at Birds on the Black. You should also be following him on Twitter if you're interested in anything minor leagues related for the Cardinals. Kyle R416 is where you can find him on Twitter. Uh, Kyle, I did want to ask you about a couple of outfielders because as we go into this 2023 season, the Cardinals outfield is certainly under the microscope. And Alec Burleson and Moises Gomez are two guys that could fit into that mix when it comes to kind of the fourth outfielder type of a role. Obviously, like polar opposites in players. You've got a lefty in Alec Burleson who's mostly a contact hitter. You've got a righty in Moises Gomez who hits purely for power and strikes out a ton. When you look at their two profiles, which of those guys do you think is more likely to, if they get that opportunity to be the fourth outfielder, to take that opportunity and run with it? I'm always inclined to say Burleson because Burleson is a little bit more uh, polished. We'll say, you know, I think, I think we started to see, and Alec Burleson didn't get much of a run in September. Um, but we did see those last couple of weeks when he was making contact, although he didn't really produce, he was starting to hit the ball harder. I think that he got his uh, hard hit rate up to like 16% in a very, very small, small sample size. The other thing is he, he just, he plays with a more polish. You know, I, I love Moises Gomez. Watching Moises Gomez on a nightly basis is one of the most wild experiences I've, I've ever participated. Sometimes 
he is a dynamic outfielder and a dynamic bat. And then sometimes he just, like on two occasions last year, he tried to throw the ball to the second baseman from like mid right field and just launched it over the second baseman's head. And like those are moments with Moises Gomez getting picked off at first are moments with Moises Gomez. But when he's dialed in, there's, there's no sneaking a pitch by him. It doesn't matter if it's outside or high, if it's a breaking pitch from a righty or a lefty, he's going to do damage. And to watch what he became this year, to watch him change his swing, because I went back and watched a lot of 2021 when he was with the Rays, to watch him change his swing instead of trying to do damage, just putting a good swing on it and letting the bat do the work, letting his swing do the work. He, he's going to be a power threat somewhere. I don't know if it'll be with the Cardinals. I don't know if I'll have to go to someplace like Texas or a team that has a, uh, like an, a chance for him to mold himself into a Dolly's Garcia because he has that kind of potential, but he's not that fielder that a Dolly's Garcia is. And he definitely has um, sometimes a beach ball size hole in his swing. But what makes Gomez really interesting is it's not a consistent hole. Like, you can try to sneak a couple change-ups by him, and you're not going to get that second one by him. It doesn't matter what if it's his third at bat of the game. doesn't matter if it's a different pitcher. You're not going to sneak it by him. He adjusts really well in the game for somebody who strikes out as much as he does. But I think for me, understanding how important it is to have a lefty bat, a lefty bat that can come in and has shown in the past, even in spring training, the ability to hit Jacob DeGrom, to hit Noah Syndergaard, to hit some of the top-level pitching, even in the minors, some of the top pitching prospects, it was always it was always Alec Burleson who would have these really tough long at bats and then find a hole to get a base hit. And he's just a, he's a smart player who does everything he can with the athleticism that he has. And to me, I, I'm really anxious to see what he gets if he gets what he looks like if he gets a real opportunity, not a September 2022 opportunity. What he gets if he gets like a real 150 uh, plate appearances in you know, uh, the team's first 50 games like that. I want to see what that looks like. Cause I think that, I think it's not going to be a Lane Thomas situation. I think it's probably going to be something more like, uh, you know, a Juan Yepes situation. I think there's a lot of, to, a lot of comparisons to draw between those two and their approach at the plate. Kyle, final question for me. Are there any under the radar prospects that we haven't talked about that you think could make an impact on the Cardinals roster? Maybe not just out of spring training, but this season. It's going to be fascinating. I think this could be the year where they have more of that. You know, if, if the Cardinals have a bunch of injuries, it's going to be frustrating for everybody. But especially with those, the, the right-handed bullpen options are fascinating to me. You know, uh, Wilking Rodriguez, the, the Rule 5 pick, he's going to be fascinating to watch. Guillermo Zuniga, the Cardinals uh, added him to the 40-man, signed him as a minor league free agent. Well, not a minor league free agent, a major league free agent. Had never pitched above A in the Dodgers system. He's a big righty with big stuff. Uh, but then, like, they also have a guy named Logan Sawyer who they signed off of the Independent League who is a, a fascinating kid that measures really well. And in the last couple of years, what the Cardinals have done in the draft with some of the release pitching arms is fascinating. You know, it's not just Laudis uh, as an undrafted free agent. It's, you know, uh, Andrew Marrero with the Cardinals' 19th round pick, I believe, 18th or 19th round pick in 2021. I have him really high on my list, higher than uh, even some – first-round draft picks in the Cardinals organization. He's higher on my, my list because his, his slider is a dynamic pitch. It's probably the best, if not one of the best pitches in the entire organization. No one's talking about it. Keep an, keep an ear out for Andrew Marrero. We're going to be talking about that right-hander reliever a lot. Uh, Andre Granillo, a 14th-round pick from the 2021 draft. Another thing, fastball slider. He's got a few other pitchers that, pitches that he works with. He could be a guy. Made, made it to double-A last year. 
he could be a guy that could force his way up to a major league debut. You know, these aren't these aren't Ron Hell Ravello. These aren't Juan Cruz. Like these two guys have a little bit more in the tank, and Logan Sawyer has more than what those other guys had. So they're not going to come to the majors. Like they have a chance to be more than that type of arm. And I, you know, the, one of my favorite guys, uh, Gianluca Luca Delatri, pitched for Team USA, was the big time prospect for UNC. Had some arm problems, had some hip problems. Uh, was part of the 2025 or 2020 undrafted free agency class from the Cardinals uh, during after that 2020 draft that we all talk about and talk about. He became a relief pitcher, was dominant in Peoria, struggled at Double A. But like that's the cr- that's the crop. And then to rant on for just one more second, and I'm sorry about this. Uh, it, there's a couple outfielders that we're not talking about that I find myself incredibly fascinated by, and th- it's like a group of three that that are kind of weird. One is a righty named Chase Pinder, Chad Pinder's little brother. Uh, Chase Pinder, when he's healthy, and he hasn't been healthy for the last two years, he might be the most like, again, not to keep saying Juan Yepes, but he might be like the most surprisingly Juan Yepes of, of the group of prospects. You know, you don't talk about him, but when you look at his advanced stats, he does everything right. And he's just a matter of him getting healthy. And he's a really good defensive center fielder. And then as, as we've seen left-handed hitting options become more and more prevalent, had such a large value at the major league level. I think uh, Chandler Redmond, who made a bunch of news last year for being the second player ever in affiliated baseball to hit for the, the home run cycle. Um, if he can continue to tap into his power against righties, I think he could be a really valuable weapon, almost like a Moises Gomez foil, but on the left-hand side. And then Matt Kaperniak is a really interesting left-handed option who only hits righties. Again, he and Chandler Redmond are terrible against lefties. Hmm. Uh, but they only hit righties, and we're seeing that in the DH, NLDH, that that role has value. I mean, Corey Dickerson was good for six weeks last year, and he turned that into $2.5 million, you know, uh, this offseason. And so that has value, and I'm anxious to see if those guys give themselves a chance to, to get an opportunity. Kyle, this has been awesome, man. People aren't going to find better information, analysis on the Cardinals prospects than he can by reading Kyle's work over at Birds on the Black, following him on Twitter at KyleR416. Appreciate the time as always, man. Thanks for for making us more informed on the Cardinals prospects. We'll talk with you again soon. You're awesome. Thank you very much. You got it. That's Kyle Reese joining us here on 101 ESPN. Always appreciate him hopping on with us today. Your single biggest takeaway, Tanner, we've got a minute here from Kyle's conversation with us was blank. That Burleson could have a potential big year for the St. Louis Cardinals from the left side as kind of that fourth outfielder if he gets the opportunity. He, he seems high on him. And then the other one was that they have some workhorses coming in, in, the, ro- in the rotation in Graceffo, Hints, and potentially Jerpy. Jerpy's another name that's floated yeah. under the radar. But those are probably my biggest takeaways. I would go with the, the pitching side of things as well. We've heard the Cardinals say that they're not super uh, concerned about their starting rotation for 2024. We look at it and we say, I'm very concerned about the starting rotation for 2024. You've got one guy currently signed. I think they view it as, yeah, we've got one guy signed. Let's see what this looks like. We'll see who in our rotation performs. We'll see what the minor league prospects look like. Tink hints. Maybe he's a year or two away. McGreevy, maybe he could be a number five starter. We didn't talk to Kyle Reese about him, but maybe Michael McGreevy can be a number five starter for them next year. Maybe you do have a Graceffo who fits in as like a fourth or third or fourth starter there. Maybe Jerpy's not as far uh, away as we think. All of these things give you reasons for optimism when it comes to the pitching side of things. So that would probably be my single biggest takeaway. And then we did get this text while we were talking to Kyle at the very beginning and said, 
if Jordan Walker isn't great this year, a lot of people are going to look foolish. Guys, I think eventually Jordan Walker is going to be a very good player. I think expecting too much from him as a 20-year-old rookie is a way for a lot of us to be disappointed. And that will not reflect on Jordan Walker. It will reflect on the fact that we expected too much from a 20-year-old kid who's trying to come up and make an adjustment at the big league level after spending all of last year at AA. So I, I do not have unreasonable expectations for Jordan Walker this year. I hope that he's really good. That's the cherry on the top. The expectation should be your outfield mix is guys that we're already talking about. They're the ones that really need to perform. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think you need to kind of give Walker a two to three year grace period to learn Major League Baseball, one, just life and what it takes to be a major leaguer, and then also learning how to adapt to what he is seeing from Major League pitching. Because what Kyle said was there's a hole in his swing, and that is that he struggles with breaking pitches away. I I remember I said yesterday, I remember there was something that he struggled with based on the reports. I couldn't remember what it was. That's what it is. It's going to take him time to learn that because you don't see a lot of breaking stuff in the minor leagues because those guys get up to the majors with their fastball. They learn the breaking ball stuff once they get up to the big leagues. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we're diving into the junk drawer, but next do the Blues need to draft and develop with the picks that they're going to get in return for Vladdy or Riley if they make those trades? Or is it time to trade those picks for proven players? Talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. If we get to March 3rd, I think it has to be an auction. Mm. I don't think the Blues can afford to try to hang on to any of these guys. Yeah. I think they have to take the best price that they can get for all of their UFAs and try to rebuild through the draft. That's essentially how they did it when they won the Cup. When you had people like Schwartz and Tarasenko and Alex Petrangelo and Bennington, that team was at least half homegrown, Joel Edmondson. So I think that's one of the things the Blues need to do is get back to their roots of draft and develop. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. That was Randy Carricker earlier today talking about the next step forward for the Blues. The first thing that is in that process is trading off their unrestricted free agents. They've got to trade Vladimir Tarasenko, Ryan O'Reilly, probably Noah Chari, Ivan Barbashev. Maybe you see what's out there available for you with Nico Mikola as well. You get as many draft picks and prospects in return for that as you can. And then the offseason hits. And then we talk about, okay, what do you do with that draft capital? Do you just pick? Do you pick, draft and develop all of those guys? Or do you flip some of those picks for maybe it's getting rid, shedding some of the salaries from your, your cap sheet? Maybe it's going out and getting proven players with those draft picks as the Blues have done in the past. What's the right step forward? Tanner, I, I think it's the latter. I think it's to go out there and get proven players. And the reason why is, or to to get rid of salary from your books. The reason why is this. I, I think that the Blues are in a retool, not a rebuild. I don't think that they want to go down the rebuild path where it's going to take three plus years to be able to get back on track. And then go back to the top 50 picks that they've had over the last, you know, seven, eight years. 2014. You get Robbie Fabry. These are top 50 picks. Robbie Fabry and Ivan Barbashev. All right, cool. T- 2014 draft. Fabry basically by the next season was up and contributing for the Blues. Ivan Barbashev didn't really become a significant contributor for the Blues until 2018. That's four years of waiting for him to become that guy. Tage Thompson, you take him in the top uh, top 50 in 2016. 
He doesn't really become the guy that we're watching right now until 2021. That's five years of waiting for Tage Thompson. Jordan Cairo, drafted in 2016, doesn't really become this player until, I mean, at the earliest 2020. You could maybe even make the argument that he didn't really become the guy that we thought he was going to be until last season. That's four or five years of waiting. Thomas, 2017 drafted, doesn't really become the player that we're watching right now until 2019 or 2020. Costin still hasn't become the player they expected it to. Same thing for Buck. Same thing for, for Perunovic. Jake Neighbors, we're only two years into his process, but two years later, he's still looking like a middle six, maybe bottom six forward for the Blues. It's going to take a little longer for them to be able to get that guy. So you're probably looking at a three-plus year stretch for him. Every one of those players, for the most part, it took at least three years to become the contributor that they were expecting them to. Are the Blues willing to wait? Are they willing to take two, three guys, four guys maybe in the top 50 and then wait until 2026 or 2027 for them to become significant contributors on the roster? I think the answer to that is no. If you could instead flip those picks for guys that are able to come in like a Buchnevich and immediately become contributing factors on your team, I think that is the right path forward. If you're able to use one of those first-round picks, attach it to, I don't know which one, one of your defensemen that you would like to shed the salary off of your books and go out there and get you know, a, a solid defenseman in return that's at a much cheaper cost or a solid forward in return at a cheaper cost, reduced rate. That makes more sense to me. So will they end up drafting somebody in the top 50 this year? Absolutely. Maybe even a couple of guys in the top 50. You have your own pick that's right now in the top 10. I don't think they're going to take two, three, four, five guys in that top 50, though. I think they're going to use those picks that they get in return to do other things. And I think they should. I I agree with you. I I don't think they want to wait four years because I think they view this still as a winning window. It's a different winning window than it was a couple years ago with Ryan O'Reilly and Vladimir Tarasenko who were on the books. Those were the guys that were leading this that that core. They've got their core locked up now and Thomas, Kairou, and Buchnevich. Those are the three guys that are going to be the driving force for this next window for the Blues. And then you've still got guys like in your forward group and Braden Shen and Brandon Saad who yes, Shen is on a long-term deal, but we're not at the ugly part of the back end of that contract. You want to be winning in the front end of that contract while he's still in his prime. So I think they are going to look to ship out. If they end up with three first-round picks, for example, I think they're going to look to move potentially two of those three picks. One potentially is what you were saying, where you attach it to one of the defensemen and try to retool this defense on the fly. Or two, or the other one, is where you just go out and get that kind of player that you're talking about. Whether it be the next Pooch Navis, there's another score that becomes available. Maybe they try and go out and do that. But I do think they're going to go that route. And, you know, when I think of they're going to draft and develop. I, I think if they're going to go that route, they almost need to be drafting, developing, and looking for defensemen. I just went through just a prospect list for the draft, just one of them. There's only five defensemen in the top 32 in terms of prospects in this year's draft because it's a scoring forwards type draft, and Alex has told us that in the past. Mm-hmm. They've already got those guys in their system. They've got the Bolduc. They've got the Snuggerud. They've got uh, neighbors who's now up with the Blues. Not sure he's going to end up being a great goal scorer, but they've already got some of their top-end goal-scoring prospects in their system. Defense is where I just don't know they can draft and develop those guys, and they're kind of stuck with the four that they have, so they need to use those picks to try and retool on the fly with that defensive core. So I I think they're not going to be patient. I think they're going to try and retool this quickly and get back to winning and be a potential playoff team next season. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. This one comes from the 314. Guys, the players that they select in the top 10 would end up coming to the NHL a lot quicker than the four years that they've been waiting for players that were selected closer to the 30s. Agreed. And that's why I don't think that they're going to be trading their pick 
in this upcoming draft. I think the likelihood is they keep that one. And then, I don't know, let's let's name a team. The Carolina. Car- Carolina Hurricanes end up trading their first round pick. Right now, that's slated to be 30th. Could be earlier, but that's where they're at right now based on their points percentage. You get their 30th overall pick in return for Vladimir Tarasenko. That's a pick you could move. Maybe with Ryan O'Reilly, he ends up going to Colorado. Right now, they, they've got them pegged for the 19th overall pick. That's a pick that you can move. Maybe it's with a salary to be able to shed it from your books. Maybe it's for a specific player that you would like to go out there and acquire. If you've got first round picks that you're dangling in the trade market, along with maybe it's prospects, maybe it's one of the players from your roster, whatever it ends up being, you can get good players in return. That's basically what it was for the Braden Shin deal. I think we were all in favor of that and it's worked out very well for the blues ever since there's moves you can make to get more cost controlled players with some of these picks that you're going to get in return. We also got this uh, from the 314. Guys, financially, can the Blues make these trades that you're talking about in the offseason? Cap-wise, it seems like they're in a tough spot. I think sometimes we overestimate just how bad of a cap situation they're in. Uh, Let's go through these one by one real quick, Tanner, and you tell me how many of these you're like, oh boy, that's going to be a problem for them. In the immediate future, maybe long-term they become problems, but in the immediacy, right? Next year, Jordan Cairo, $8 million. We're okay with that, right? Yeah, not a problem. Robert Thomas, $8 million. No problem. Brandon Saad, 4.5. No. 6.5 for Braden Shin. No. $775,000 for Nathan Walker. Uh, No. There's your list of forwards that are currently signed for next season. You've also got restricted free agency for Logan Brown and Alexi Torpchenko. They'll be, if they want them back, they'll be back at a reasonable rate. All right, goalie, Jordan Bennington, 6 million bucks. No, I don't have a problem with that one. I think it's fine. Pavel Buchnevich, 5.8 million bucks. No, don't have a problem with that one. Now we're on to the defenseman. And that's where things get tough. And this is why I think that when you look at the defense, that is the area that if I was Doug Armstrong, I would be targeting to attach a pick with the player and shed some of that salary. You've got $6.5 million next year for Falk, Krug, and Pareko. You've got $4 million bucks next year for Nick Letty. You've got $3.2 million bucks next year for Marco Scandella. Those are the contracts where you you need to probably shed some salary. You've got like $30 million committed to your defensive core right now for next season alone. And this is a defensive core that we all agree is not performing up to their capabilities. So when you're looking at how do you how do you fix this? How do you get out of this financially? This is the way out. This is your way out is by attaching one, maybe multiple of those defensemen with picks to be able to get something that is usable in return. Yeah, and that's where I come in is where you have to find a way to retool this defense on the fly because the the problem I think they could run into is if they don't retool the defense and they start sent, let's say of the three draft picks that were thrown out in this scenario, you end up trading two of the three. It's the Colorado pick where we traded O'Reilly and it's the Carolina pick where we've traded uh, Vladdy. If you decide to use those two picks and just go in and try and improve the forward group, I still think you're in a tough spot because what happens, you've still got the same defensive issues to where, yes, you may have improved the forwards. Yes, maybe you're trying to outscore your problems, but that's a tough way to live if you're in the NHL of just outscoring your problems. There has to be some sense of goal prevention. I'm not saying they get back to that 2019 form where they were just shutting down opponents and bullying them to death. No, you can't You can't do that. I, I don't think they're going to ever be back at that level. But they can't be as uh, at the point where they are now where they're like bottom 10 in the league and goals allowed, but and 
and expect to win if you're even top 10 in goals for. Yep. It's just not going to happen the way. There has to be some sense of goal prevention. So that's where I don't, they can't fall into the trap of, okay, well, we're stuck with this defensive core. Let's trade away all those picks and go out there and just improve the forward group. I don't know if they can win still that way. If you're going to trade these picks, yes, you can look to upgrade at the forward position, help your goal scoring in, in your depth there. But I think you also have to use one to attach to a defenseman and try and ship them out so you can try retooling the defense. And to your point on the Blues issues right now with goal suppression, I put I looked this up earlier today. The Blues have allowed at least four goals in 29 games this season. They've only played 51. 29 out of their 51 games, they've allowed at least four goals in that game. To put that in context, the last time they allowed four or more goals at this point in the season, that often was 1984. It's been 40 years, basically, since the last time that the Blues were this bad at allowing four-plus goals on average. The only team to allow four or more goals more often than the Blues so far this season. Tell me if you you see any theme about these three teams. Anaheim, they've allowed yeah. four or more goals 31 times. And Vancouver, they've allowed four or more goals 30 times so far this year. The Blues are up there with the worst teams in the NHL when it comes to their goal suppression. And they're paying a lot of money for that lack of goal suppression. Paying six million bucks for your goalie, you're paying six and a half million bucks for Falk, Krug, and Pareko, four million bucks for Letty, two million for Nico Mikola, and you got $3.2 million right now on your IR with Marco Scandella. That's where you got to get things fixed. Your forward group, you can make, remake that. You can make that up in the offseason. Your defensive core has to be completely overhauled going into this offseason. And the picks that you get at the deadline, that's your path forward. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, I disagree with Katie Wu. I love Katie Wu. I disagree with her offseason grade for the Cardinals. I think she's being a little bit harsh on them. We'll talk about that coming up at the top of the hour. But coming up next, we're diving into the junk drawer with a six-year-old child who spent $1,000 on Grubhub. I'll tell you the story coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. Have you ever accidentally bought something on your phone, Tanner? Where you're like going through and you didn't even mean to do it. Maybe it's on Amazon. Maybe it's on a website. You didn't even realize that you had officially clicked like buy. But you just something shows up into your house. And then you look at your credit card statement. You're like, what the? Did I actually buy this? Did I mean to do this? Or maybe you were just drunk. Maybe you had a a bender. I've never drunk. You were in Alton. You had a good time. And something went awry. I don't think that happened. Uh, I have accidentally bought nothing on Amazon. But I have accidentally ordered like two pizzas before. At like a restaurant when I wanted one where I order online. And I think when I first click on it, it sure. added the car. I didn't realize it. I do remember being like, oh, wow, that's an expensive pizza. But you know what? It's good. I'll get it. And then I show up and there was two. So I've done that. I don't think I've ever accidentally ordered something. Though. So one thing that I've done, and I felt bad about it. I'm not going to lie to you. I felt bad about it at the time. I ordered a pair of shoes off of uh, New Balance, right? I used them for my, my running shoes. They came to my house and I, I look at my wife and I say, I... I didn't order these. Like, I don't remember getting these. Let me reframe this. I had shoes that I had purchased, and I forgot that I ordered them. And I look at my credit card statement. I'm like, Kara, I don't 
I don't remember purchasing any kind of shoes. So I emailed them and I'm like, hey guys, I I never ordered these. I never got them. Like, I, I don't know what this $100 purchase is that's on my account, but c- can you refund me? Because I never got anything of the sort. They refunded me. And then I went over to the room a few days later and I was like, oh no, <laughs> I did get these shoes. So that's the only thing that I've had that's similar to this. And it's a little bit different. <sighs> don't give your kid your phone. Just don't do it. That's the lesson that I've learned before my child has come onto this earth. This comes from Detroit, Michigan. The doorbell just kept ringing and the cars just kept coming after a six-year-old Michigan boy went on a wild $1,000 spending spree like he was on a game show while using his father's Grubhub account. He ordered large amounts of food from various area restaurants and the food continued to pile up. The dad said later, quote, it was like something out of an SNL skit. I was probably at a nine and a half out of 10 on an anger scale while it was taking place. Even the next day, I was at an eight and now I'm probably at a three. I still don't find it particularly funny, but I can laugh with people a little bit because it is a lot of money and it kind of came out of nowhere. So let me explain what happened. This six-year-old was playing a game on his dad's phone. And while he was playing that game, he somehow got over to the Grubhub app. And while he was on that app, he ordered so much food that Chase Bank, the father's banking company, (laughs) declined a $440 order from Happy's Pizza. Oh, my gosh. However, this is unfortunate. They did not decline the $185 order of jumbo shrimp uh, from the same was restaurant normal. because, of course, that's going to be something that is totally normal. This dude ended up racking up $1,000 in food from a bunch of different places. He was ordering chicken shawarma, chili cheese fries, ice cream, uh, rice, uh, chicken pita sandwiches, jumbo shrimp, five orders of jumbo shrimp. Can you imagine? I can't. I can't believe they didn't shut it down sooner before it got to the thousand dollars. Like the four hundred dollar one was the one that was the red alarm said, "Oh, hey, something's going on here." <laughs> but yeah, when the bill was racking up towards thousand dollars, you no, you know, shrimp. Ice I feel cream, like we have seen so party. many of these stories now. Whether it be like a kid getting on Xbox and then suddenly getting over to the marketplace, or uh, getting oh, yeah, on Amazon on accident and buying stuff that they're not supposed to. Like, there's got to be a way where you can put all of your apps onto parent, parental lock. I thought you could. That's why I, I, I don't know. I've, I haven't gotten to that place in my life yet. So maybe you can. But I feel like you should be able to hand your phone over to your child. They play on a game and everything else on the phone immediately locks upon you getting like clicking some kind of a button where it's only one app is available to be opened at any given time right now. That yeah, should be something I, that they have if they don't. I, I thought you could do that, but maybe I'm wrong. But because like most of the things on like my phone, like if there's something that needs to be purchased, it'll do like the face ID where it has to scan my face mm-hmm. to approve a purchase. I'm shocked that Grubhub didn't have that. And again, I'm still fascinated by the fact that the bank didn't shut it down before it got to the thousand dollars uh, that he was able to spend. I, I know my dad just recently did this where he accidentally bought some. I can't remember what it was, though, but it was not a thousand dollars worth in stuff. Somebody from the 314 says it's called Watch Your Kids. Okay. 
Let's relax here for a little bit. Uh, one of those I, from the 314. I have to imagine that many of you in our audience have had a similar situation. Not necessarily where your kid is buying $1,000 on Grubhub, but where your kid's playing with your phone and you're doing something else for a minute and you look away. It's going to happen to anybody. It just actually happened to this guy in Michigan where it went horribly wrong. Horribly wrong. Nobody could have expected that the kid was going to buy $1,000 on Grubhub. I'm sure he's probably played with his phone a million different times. And it just so happened that this time around, uh, he ended up getting $1,000 worth of Grubhub. Somebody said there's a purchase lock that you can put on your phone or you have to put a pin to buy something. Maybe that's the way that you, you go about it. I just thought, I just assumed that was normal. Does that mean I've accidentally put on a parental lock on my own phone? <laughs> Which is probably for the best. I mean, that's probably true, but wow, if that's the case. You'd be over here depositing thousands of dollars into your FanDuel account every Friday yeah, night. <laughs> Somebody else said, once upon a time, I put $1,000 on my DraftKings account with my dad's credit card. I was 13 years old. I got a huge first-time deposit bonus. Boy, I would be furious absolutely furious the nice thing about that if you didn't spend it immediately and i don't know what what this guy did if you didn't spend it immediately you can at least withdraw yeah, it you can pull it out there's nothing you can do once that food is delivered oh no there's no getting the money back you ordered yeah, that, it that's right that's even like the worst case scenario is because if it's something that you order like what you said with the shoes even though you actually you did can order return them, them you can return them you can't do that with the- <laughs> no it's over there's nothing you can do at this point. All right, coming up in 15 minutes, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. You give us two scenarios. We'll tell you which one is more likely to happen. But coming up next, I love Katie Wu. I think she does excellent work. I completely disagree with her off-season grade for the Cardinals. We'll discuss it coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Count that, that big pen. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. We'll talk to Chris Kerber, the voice of the blues at 1.30. More likely to happen is coming up in about 10 minutes or so. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. If you have two scenarios, we will tell you which one is more likely. But right now, I want to talk a little bit about the Cardinals because... Tanner, I was reading over on The Athletic, and you know how much we love Katie Wu. She's our friend. She is the Cardinals analyst for, or the beat writer for The Athletic. She does excellent work over there. They asked each individual beat writer for Major League Baseball teams around the league what grade you would give for the Cardinals offseason. And I would be curious what our listeners would give as a grade for the Cardinals this offseason as well. Here's what Katie Wu wrote. She said it was an underwhelming offseason for St. Louis with rising payroll totals falling short of both the front office and fans' expectations. The Cardinals made three major moves, two of which were retaining Nolan Arenado and Adam Wainwright. The third, of course, was signing Wilson Contreras, which filled an obvious need behind the plate while simultaneously boosting the team's offense. St. Louis does deserve some credit for acquiring the best free agent backstop available and addressing two birds with one stone, but... You don't get a top grade for doing the minimum. Her grade that she gave the Cardinals for their offseason was a C. Man, that's like my calculus teacher. That's cruel. I think I would give them a solid B. And the reason why is because I think it would have been worse for the Cardinals 
to go out there and give the crazy amounts of money for like Dansby Swanson than it is for them to to be content with having some question marks going into the season. I don't think Dansby Swanson was a player that made sense for this team. I think Dansby Swanson made a lot of sense for a team like the Cubs that did not have obvious answers internally in the middle infield. They're now very good defensively there, and they feel good about Dansby Swanson and Nico Horner moving forward. That that's that makes sense to me. If you could have gone out and got, you know, Carlos Correa or Bogarts on a more reasonable deal than what he got, or Trey Turner on a more reasonable deal than what he got, not 13 years. All of those would have made sense to me. I don't think Dansby Swanson was a big enough upgrade to be worth it. I don't think like earlier today, I heard Randy, I I don't know if this has been reported elsewhere, but he said that his understanding is the Cardinals actually offered $500,000 more to Cody Bellinger than what he eventually got from the Cubs. Did I want Cody Bellinger at $18 million this year? No, I didn't. And the reason why he went to the Cubs is because the Cardinals couldn't promise him playing time here, which makes sense because there's no guarantee that he's going to be better than any of the three outfielders that you have in your mix already internally. Would it have been better for them to just go out there and spend that money? No, I want them to spend it smartly. I want them to spend it wisely. So I would give them a B because I think they ended up getting a very good player in Wilson Contreras that did fill their biggest need and helps them offensively. I wish they would have had Carlos Rodon. That was the one other move that I wanted them to make, but I don't really, we've gone through this a million different times. I didn't see a lot of other moves that they didn't make that, that I wish that they would. Yeah. I I fall in line with you. I I gave them a B plus when, when I look at them because I, I thought they had three needs. I originally said probably four going in the off season, but I changed my mind because originally I said, you know, I would like to see them get an outfielder after hearing them talk and kind of what they're doing and throwing numbers at it. I, I changed that from a need to a want same with the front end starter. I didn't view it as a need. I viewed it as more of a want for the St. Louis Cardinals. I, their needs to me were, and Mo said two of these up front at the beginning of the year, you know, we need a catcher and we need someone that's going to augment the offense. And I agreed with that. And they did that. They killed two birds with one stone and they went out and got the top catcher on the free agent market in Contreras. The only other need they haven't filled, in my opinion, and maybe it's because what Kyle Reese told us where they've got a lot of young bullpen arms in the minor leagues and a couple guys that are projects that'll be, that have a chance to be those late inning guys this year, like Rodriguez. I, I think they still need a bullpen arm. There's a couple on the market still. I think Andrew Chafin makes a ton of sense for the St. Louis Cardinals. Michael Fulmer, I don't think I've seen him sign anywhere yet, but he makes a ton of sense for the St. Louis Cardinals. Still, that got some swing and miss stuff. Can be a bullpen arm to come out late in innings. So I still think they need one of those guys, but because they're willing to spend big on the free agent market and make that pivot after not being able to go trade for Sean Murphy or go get one of the Toronto catchers, I think they get a B-plus in my book. I, I think they did mostly what they needed to do this offseason. And all those other categories, to your point of, you know, looking at the shortstop market, that was more of a one. If those guys end up getting more of uh, the deals that we thought originally around that seven, eight-year range, okay, I could understand that, like the Trey Turners, Bogarts, guys like that. The outfield, the same conversation. If Benintendi wasn't getting a five-year deal and Nimmo didn't get the massive deal he got, I think those yeah. guys would have made sense for the St. Louis Cardinals. But again, they were more of a want. And I, I think the rotation's fine, and I'm willing to gamble at least right now on Flaherty being healthy. That was more of a want looking for the Rodon, the Verlander, guys like that. So I think they covered most of their needs. And for that reason, I think they get a B plus. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 314. Guys, there's no way I'm giving the Cardinals a better grade for moves they chose not to make. You don't get bonus points on a test for choosing not to answer a question instead of answering it incorrectly. I think what the Cardinals did this offseason, though, is they opened up flexibility. 
And I, I think that there is some value in that. And the, what I mean is the Cardinals decided not to trade their internal options prospect-wise. The Cardinals chose not to hand out you know, $18 million. I guess maybe they tried to and the guy just didn't take it. But $18 million for a left-handed bat that could have been the equivalent in the outfield of what Paul DeYoung is offensively in the infields with Cody Bellinger. That was very much on the table. Their recent histories are incredibly similar in terms of their production at the plate. So when they don't have those guys, when they didn't go out and make that move, now you can do that internally during the season. If you have a problem in the outfield that opens up, if your guy's either are hurt or don't perform up to expectations. Go get a guy that can help you there. That's what the Braves did a couple of years ago. If you have a problem pitching-wise, guys don't step up internally the way that you're hoping. Maybe Jack Flaherty is not going to be that guy for them. Well, then go make the move that the Mariners did last year by getting Luis Castillo at the trade deadline. If your bullpen doesn't take the way that you're hoping it does because these offseason under-the-radar moves just didn't work out, all right, then go get some good relievers at the trade deadline. They're always available. So I I can't crush them for not making the moves at the deadline before we get to the trade deadline. If they don't end up adding to this roster, then I'm totally with you guys. Yeah, I will be critical of what they decided to do in season. I think just maybe this is where we end up with, and it's kind of in the theme of the offseason. I like this team more than most people do. I think the Cardinals are a really good team right now. And most of the projections that I'm seeing coming out, I saw another one yesterday They're considered to be at a minimum top 10 team in Major League Baseball, and most of them have the Cardinals as a top three to four team in the National League with the room to get even better than that because they do have some baked in upside, especially in that outfield. So I guess the question that I would have is the one that we've always talked about. What did you want them to do that they didn't do? Don't just say, I wanted them to spend more. I wanted them to go make more moves. I wanted them to not just do the bare minimum this offseason. Okay, totally fair. What did you want them to do instead, though? Who is the player that for the cost that they got, you wanted to go out, you wanted them to go out and acquire? It's easy to complain about the payroll. It's a little tougher to actually say, this is the payroll that I wanted them to spend, and I was okay with them spending that given what it's going to preclude them to do in future offseasons. And, and ju- I'll, I'll use an example of one of those that you're saying of what was one that you would have liked to see them do. Again, I still think starting pitching was a one. I would not have done the Rodon deal, but I would have done the Verlander deal. That sure. two-year deal, high, high AAV, bring in an ace like that and then move somebody out of that rotation, maybe end up trading Montgomery in the offseason or you trade uh, Michael is somebody like that. You're moving one of those arms by bringing in Verlander. That's a move that I wouldn't mind them doing. Again, I felt it was still more of a want than a need. But also, I don't have the issue of saying, okay, we think we can fill the outfield position by throwing the numbers at it, and we think that we have high upside there. I don't have a problem with saying that going into the season. There were clearly spots they did not have those, hey, let's just throw numbers at it and we can see what happens if things go our way, like the catcher position, for example. They they didn't, like you said, the Cubs, they didn't have a midfield, middle infield solution. They had to go out in free agency. Carlos didn't have a catching solution. They had to go whether via trade or free agency to solve it. They decided to go via free agency. I don't mind going into the season with some question marks of, hey, we think if this ends up hitting, we're going to reach to be one of the top five lineups in Major League Baseball for outfielders end up hitting. Where I will crush them, to your point, is if they don't make that, if they don't fix that at the deadline. It's fair to have questions going into the season, and I think that's where there's that disconnect from where we're sitting and what we're seeing from the text line, where it is, well, they've got too many questions. They need, they need those answered by the time we get to spring training. I don't think they need those answered 
tour past the trade deadline. They have to get everything answered past the deadline to go on a run yeah. in the playoffs. And that's where I am. As I don't mind having questions going into the season, I will be more critical of them once you get to the trade deadline. From the 636. Guys, how is this team better than the team that we saw a year ago? Contreras will be slightly worse than what Pujols was last year. There are legitimate question marks in the outfield. The starting pitching is iffy. There's a lot of concerns about this Cardinals team. I guess I just don't see what you do. Maybe. Maybe it ends up being worse. And I think that there are legitimate questions of, okay, what happens if Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt are merely good this year and not like having all-time great seasons? What does that do for your offense? I think that's a fair question to ask. I would also add, I think that you have internal answers that maybe you didn't have a year ago. Tyler O'Neill barely played last year, let's be honest. And and Tyler O'Neill was counted upon to be a significant factor in that lineup. Dylan Carlson, bad year for him. Is he going to be better this year? I don't know, but they're hoping that he is. And this is where it gets back to what I know a lot of our our listeners get frustrated with. It's it's reasonable where it is hit, hope and if and maybe with the Cardinals all the time get more certainty, but certainty costs. Certainty is you go out to the, the market and you spend 11 years on Xander Bogarts. Uh, you go out to the market and you spend... $175 million on Dansby Swanson for a slightly above average shortstop. It's super expensive. And I think this is the part that I just diverge from a lot of fans. I don't want to do those things, not just because of what it is this year. Like, forget that. Maybe Dansby Swanson makes you a little better in 2023. That's fair. I get it. That's a reasonable take to have. I don't want to do that because of what it does not allow you to do next offseason. I don't want to do that because then you get into the spot that they were in when Matt Carpenter had his big deal at the back end of his career. When you had, um, who was it? The Brett Cecil on a bad contract on a multi-year deal for a reliever. Like we've seen them do these things where they just make a move to make a move. Mike Leak, we need a starter. Let's go get Mike Leak. Don't do that. If you're going to go shop in the market, go get the really good high level players, the top shelf players, and they did that this offseason. And I didn't think they were going to, if we're being totally honest. They got Wilson Contreras. Now they've got to end up going out there and actually performing. That's where we'll evaluate them. And then if they're wrong, if this team doesn't perform well and they don't go out and supplement it with talent, that's when we can get mad. And I will grade them in season for what they do in season. But what they did this offseason, I would give them a solid B. T-Bone would give them a B plus. I think giving them in a C range is a little unfair given what the given what was available to them this offseason and given what their needs were. In about 15 minutes, we're talking to Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, but next, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service sex line. You give us two options. I'll tell you which one's more likely here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. What's more likely to happen? They'll figure it out. BK and Ferrario's most likely to happen. Four three nine 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 six four six is the air comfort service text line for more likely to happen. You give us two scenarios. We will tell you which one is more likely. But before we get to that, I want to read this text from the 618. We mentioned the last segment. If the Cardinals get to the deadline and they don't end up improving, we will criticize them for doing so. 618 says, no, you will not. You'll be like every other 101 ESPN peon and you'll kiss Mose Lock and Bill DeWitt's feet. Man, that is harsh stuff. So there you go. 
That's what we do. When we go out to Bush Stadium, we just Sorry, kiss their Sorry, I like the Montgomery trade last year. My bad. He was only pretty good. Quintana only started game one last year. No. My bad. Next time works. I'll be more critical. That's not how this works. Uh, all right, let's get to the text line. This one comes from the 314. Guys, what's more likely? A Blues defenseman gets traded at the deadline or Craig Berube gets fired before the season is over? Oh, that's not fair. I think it's more likely a Blues defenseman gets traded at the deadline because I think there's a real chance that Nico Mikola is that guy. So that's what I would go with. I know that's probably not the defenseman that you were talking about. It was about, not. When, you know, now I'm glad you one that said Mikola because, okay, originally I was thinking the top four guys. I was like, man, they're leading me down a bad path where I have to say Bruby, but no, I'm with you because I've forgotten about Mikola. I I think it's more likely it's a defenseman dealt because I, I think he's going to be dealt. I, when we had uh, David Pagnota on while you were out, uh, editor, chief and editor, fourth period in, on Sirius XM and NHL Network, he said that apparently Edmonton has interest. So I think he and makes Mikola. sense. Yeah, you, they can acquire him. It would be like third, fourth round pick, and he comes in and he's either on your third pairing or a solid guy that's up in the press box because as we learned last year, you always need a lot of defensemen once it comes to playoff time. Uh, all right, from the 615, uh, guys, what's more likely? St. Louis ends up getting a retractable roof stadium for the NFL or a new indoor arena for the NBA? Uh, n- neither, neither of the above, but I would probably go indoor arena for the NBA is more likely than an NFL stadium. I, I think we can, I, I think we can put the NFL behind us. I don't think that that's happening. I would agree with you. I would say more likely the NBA. I think the only last ditch kind of hope, if you want to call it that, for the NFL back in St. Louis was the reports that Mike Florio had back during the lawsuit with the Rams was that maybe the NFL would offer up an expansion team. But now that that's settled and everything's behind us there, I I just don't see the NFL coming back. Uh, All right. From the 314, guys, what is more likely? Paul DeYoung hits his way into the lineup, the starting lineup in spring training, or Lars Newbar hits his way out of the starting lineup in spring training. I think it's the latter. I, I don't think there's any way Paul DeYoung becomes a starter for this team on opening day. Um, I, I would be legitimately shocked by that. If Newbar really struggles in spring training and you have O'Neill perform well when he's back from the World Baseball Classic, Carlson is hitting well. Now let's say it's Jordan Walker takes off while while Newt Barr is over in um, the World Baseball Classic. I I could see that being your starting opening day outfield, but I I think Newt is the guy that they're expecting to be the starter. But if things go disaster in, in a horrible way in spring training, that would be the one that I think is more likely. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you because I just don't see a scenario in which Paul DeYoung wins a starting job because I I don't think he's beaten out. Tommy Edmond for shortstop, and they are they've said that he's going to play like a little bit of second base in spring training with everybody out. I, I don't see him beating Brendan Donovan and Nolan Gorman to be the starting second baseman. So I would say it's more likely the latter. And to that point, you know, I I, I agree with you. I think their hope is it's O'Neill, Carlson, Newpars. They're starting outfield with maybe the hope that Walker can beat somebody out. And also, like when we had BT in last week, I think he said it perfectly. Whoever hits is going to play in that outfield. If that means you've got an outfield, though it might be awful defensively in uh, Yepes in left, Burleson in right, and Carlson in center. If they're hitting, they're going to play, and they're going to figure a way out to get the hottest bats in the lineup. Uh, guys, more likely to happen from the 3-1-4. Jordan Walker wins rookie of the year. Jack Flaherty makes the all-star game. This is an interesting one. Uh, this Corbin Carroll kid from the Diamondbacks. He's supposed to be a stud. Seems to be the like odds-on favorite to win rookie of the year. 
I think it's going to be really hard to adjust immediately from double A going up to the big leagues at 20 years old. I know last year we just saw this. Michael Harris was excellent with the Braves, but that is the exception, not the rule. And we saw last year with a highly touted prospect in Nolan Gorman, how it it can take some time. We saw the same thing with Dylan Carlson. Carlson was a incredibly high level prospect. I'm going Jack Flaherty more likely to make the all-star game here. I think I'm leaning that way too. I, I I could see where Jack Flaherty has that bounce back here. I do think he has a big year. You know, not only is it just, I think he's going to be healthy this year, but also that he's playing for his next contract. So I'll say more likely Jack Flaherty to your point on Jordan Walker. I go back to, you know, we, we talked about with Kyle Reese. We talked about it yesterday. If there's a hole in his swing, which apparently he's breaking balls away, teams are going to find it and they're going to try and exploit it right away on a kid. That's just in his early in his twenties. So I think you're going to see Walker go through some ups and downs this year. He may not end up come. He may get called up and may never go back to AAA, but he's going to go through some ups and downs and have to work on his adjustments. So I'll say more likely Flaherty's an all-star. All right, final one here from the 618. We'll talk to Chris Kerber on the other side here in just a few minutes. More likely to happen. The Blues trade all of their pending unrestricted free agents or Doug Armstrong doesn't like any of the deals and decides to hold on to all of his pending UFAs. More likely they're all dealt or they all stay. Oh, I'm going more likely they're all dealt. I Doug Armstrong's a smart general manager in hockey uh, hockey operations. Um, I, I you have to move some to get some assets in return. You can't just let most of these guys walk for free. Like what I would they have interest in bringing back Kachari? Yes. Would they have interest in bringing back Barbie? Yes. But someone like Vladdy, who I think wants out won't come back to St. Louis. You don't let a talent like that walk. So I I think it is more likely that they deal all of the UFAs rather than keeping all these guys and missing on a prime opportunity to get some great assets back that can help you retool this on the fly. I don't see any scenario whatsoever in which they keep all of their unrestricted free agents. None. It would be shocking, and I, I just don't see that happening. So... I would go with them trading all of their pending UFAs as well. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll get into the BK and Ferrario Rewind. With the big news yesterday in the NFL, we talked. We were going to talk about it at the beginning of the show today until you know Tom Brady decides he wanted to retire. The NFL has changed hands in terms of its coaching uh, cycle. I, I think that what the Broncos decided to do here, super smart. And they're getting crushed from a lot of people. We'll discuss that coming up in about 15 minutes or so. Coming up next, the voice of the Blues, Chris Kerber, here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. And I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Alex is in the most magical place on earth. He'll be back next week. We are going out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line to be joined by our friend and the voice of the blues, Chris Kerber, who gets a few days of much deserved off time. Curves, we appreciate the time as always, man. How you doing today? Doing good, Brandon. How are you? Uh, doing well. The Blues going into the break, not the way that any of us would like with the five-game losing streak. Seven out of their last nine have been on the wrong side of things. Uh, Curbs, have you seen anything in terms of like a, a trend that has taken place, especially over these last nine games or so, that uh, led to them going into the break with the five-game losing streak? Uh, well, I, I think this part of this losing streak 
well, one, this team has been streaky all season long, as we know, but part of this losing streak appears to really be the direct result of the amount of talent that's out of the lineup. And yes, Vladimir Tarasenko, you know, returned and Tori Krug, I thought had a very good uh, return to the lineup. The five games without a point with Tarasenko since he got in that lineup, um, uh, at least four without a point. I don't remember if he picked up an assist. I don't think he did on that in that last game. Uh, and then, you know, without O'Reilly and Butchnevich, and it's it's really hard to win in this in the National Hockey League when for a good chunk of change, three of your top six are on the shelf. So I think that's a big reason for it. Now, having said that, the thing that is costing the team is the same mistakes that have been, you know, going all year long, and and they just haven't figured out how to avoid them. And so uh, some of it is current-related in terms of personnel, and then some of it is just the 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 needed game shift in, shift out hasn't been there. Curbs, when you look at specifically the way that things have gone over the last few, I, I looked looked into this um, the other day, what the trend has been in their losses. And in their last 20 losses, Curbs, they've only had one where they did not give up at least four goals. That was the game against the Colorado Avalanche in mid-November where they lost three to two in overtime. Every single other loss in their last 20 uh, was at least four goals that was allowed. What's going on with their goal suppression this year? Is there anything specifically that you could put put your finger on that's been a consistent problem for them in that regard? Well, and I think you could actually take that stat and really just expand it to the whole season. And you've had 25 regulation losses. And I believe, I don't have my scorebook from this nugget right in front of me, but the, some of the prep I did for that last game, I, I, I believe, I think it's 20, uh, 22 out of those 25. 21 or 22 out of those 25, you've allowed four or more goals. Okay, so to your point, what 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 is the reason for that? The the team defense just hasn't been there, whether it be defensemen ending up out of position because they're trying to uh, cover too much, whether it be forwards not coming back, the timeliness and the location of turnovers, which still reared its head in a big way in Winnipeg in that last game, if you think of the the, the, the turnover by Falk, you know, trying to clear the zone. Uh, th- those, are, those are the kind of things. And, and there was another play, Brandon, that, that represents this as well. Colton Pareko circled the net with the puck, and he came out the left side with it. Winnipeg did a good job of reading it, and they kind of cut his path off. There was nobody for Colton to pass the puck to. Two forwards on that side of the ice were on the offensive half of the red line. So when the clearing attempt either goes down and, and, and ends up being an icing call, or in this case it was blocked before it got to the other blue line, someone's going to look at the defenseman and say, well, you got to make a better play than that. Okay, the only thing that maybe Colton tries to do is skate around the guy that was cutting him off. But the forwards are a zone and a half away from him and, and not close enough and tight enough to give him a real good outlet there. And as a result, Winnipeg comes back, they put pressure on to keep momentum, in your zone. So to me, that's that's the difference in why you're seeing so many pucks go in the back of the net is because you haven't had clean enough play and offensive zone play to keep the puck on the other end of the ice long enough or the turnovers have been have been bad enough that, that the other team has great scoring chances. So how does that get fixed, Curbs? Like whether it's short or long-term, right? Because I, I've kind of, I, I don't know if you've done the same, but 
I've shifted my focus more into the long-term view of this club than the short-term, especially with us having only 10 games remaining prior to the NHL's trade deadline. Right now, they're eighth overall in in terms of the draft pick standings. So I've shifted more towards the long-term view of things, but you can take it in either direction. How does that kind of a problem get fixed, especially when you have your top four defensemen at a minimum that are are signed long-term right now? Well, I'm, I'm with you, to be honest with you, because I think it'll take a 9-1, and 8-2 type run to maybe even just pull yourself back into the picture where you're comfortable, think you might have a chance. So I just don't see Doug Armstrong changing course too much in that stretch. So I expect the interest in somebody like an Ivan Barbashev or, or Tarasenko O'Reilly to grow. And, and at that point, once you see one, if not two of those pieces moved, to me, that's going to tell you exactly where the use set in terms of the future for in terms of the rest of the year. I do think though, Brandon, if you look at moving this forward into next year, let's say that the blues miss the playoffs this year, you end up somehow with a top 10 pick. Maybe you're lucky enough. You win the draft lottery, but we'll, we'll talk pie in the sky later. Right. (laughs) Uh, But I still look at a team that remember Winnipeg jets missed the playoffs last year. And then right now are battling for first in the division. In, 18, 19, in, in 17, 18, the Blues missed the playoffs, made the playoffs the next year, and won the Stanley Cup. I don't see this as an Edmonton, a Buffalo, a Columbus situation that the Blues are in. When I look at the fact that you have the four defensemen you mentioned, Pareko, Krug, Falk, and, and Letty under contract. You've got Bortuzzo under contract for another year. You've got Scandella, who will be coming back hopefully in March under contract for another year along with Perunovic. Then there's Tucker, who has looked like he could play right now in the National Hockey League, and they're really happy with what they're seeing from Kessel in Springfield. You've got a Stanley Cup champion goaltender uh, in Jordan Bennington, who's proving again this year that he absolutely is a, a number one starter in the National Hockey League. And then I look at the forwards with Thomas, Kairou, Butchnevich, just to begin with. And, and to me, th- there are – and then the, the, the future coming with a Snuggerud, this isn't a long-term dip uh, to me. So I just think that in the end, whatever it snowballed this year, it's it's very difficult to try and grab in the next 10 games, even 15 for that. It's going to take some – remember when Craig Berube took over? He took over a team that in November – this was November was struggling. They didn't get back to the 500 mark and go on the roll until January. This it, It's not easy to get this – sometimes this ship turned around to avoid that iceberg. So – uh, I, I, I think it ends up being something that is probably more of a focus in the offseason, the coaching approach going into next year where the thing really gets turned around. Now, having said all that, can you catch lightning in a bottle? Can something happen? Can something click? Do you have uh, an addition by subscri- uh, subtraction here maybe? Uh, but I, I think you do have to look, as you were saying, longer term in terms of the fix here. I think the personnel are there. Things just snowballed out of control where a lot of the attention to detail – just hasn't been able to be grabbed curbs. I can't believe that I'm asking this question, but I I have to do it because it's a something that we get on the text line a lot. And I think you probably already know what's coming, but B when the team goes through as many losing streaks as they have this year, it's something that is at least going to be asked. What is your evaluation of the job that this coaching staff and specifically Craig Berube has done through this season? I think if you look at it very fairly, and this is not me having talked to people in the organization. You asked me just my opinion on this yeah. one, so I want to make sure that that's clear. I I think that this has been 
the biggest piece of adversity in terms of on-ice struggle that this coaching staff has been met with since they took over. There was really not a ton of pressure that first year because you were already struggling, as it were, going into that January year. I, I look at this coaching staff. I watch. I look at the interaction with Steve Ott, and, and I see great things. I look at Mike Van Ryan, and, and you know, there's a guy that was interviewed by a couple of teams this past summer. Uh, I, I think Craig Berube is, is probably it's, it, it's his toughest stretch as head coach of the St. Louis Blues. Uh, but I also think he's clearly earned, you know, a leash here to try and right the ship. I think part of what ha- I got to be honest with you, I, I this this is not this is as much roster as it is anything else too. I think there was an underestimation of the impact of losing a guy like David Perron. I think the fact that you've lost as many good quality players over the last three years as you have, you just don't replace that. You don't go out, and this is not knocking Pedlick and Levo, and Achari, and well, Achari was in the Stanley Cup final against the Blues, but it's not knocking some of the, a Jake Neighbors, a Logan Brown, a Torovchenko. You're not replacing the Perrons and, and the and the Petrangelos and the Schwartzes and the, and the players that you groom to become champions with those guys without growing pains. And I think you've got to let this coach and coaching staff work through some of those growing pains. Now, they're going to have to probably – review their own job in, in, in the mirror and, and, and figure out what they might want to do differently. Is there a different style that you've got to try to work in to kind of lock things down better? Yeah, that might be a strategic thing, but that's kind of the way I view it from kind of an overall coaching slash organizational perspective, I guess, if that answers the question. Yeah, no, it definitely does. And I, I think that's going to be uh, something that's interesting to see kind of how they're playing coming out of this break. It's a good time for them to be able to self-evaluate and find out, all right, what, what was well, working, let me ask you this. what wasn't. Yeah, real quick here. Let me look like I always look at if people ever look at coaching uh, and and say, well, you make a change. Okay, well, number one, he was given a contract extension. Number two, he's proven that he can coach young players to become good players in the National Hockey League. And all you have to do is look at Thomas and and Cairo and a couple of other players as well. So to to me, I look at that. But the question is, who do you replace him with? And, And I don't know that you sit there and go out and grab somebody a veteran guy right now that you go, well, this guy's going to be better than, than our guy. And I'll tell you what, and I, and I also look at it this way. He's the kind of coach that, in my opinion, is if he became a free agent, he became available on the coach's market, somebody else in the NHL 100%. is losing their job so a coach can hire this guy. Exactly. And if that's the case, unless there's a real problem, I'm not looking at coaching yet. It doesn't mean you don't evaluate. They don't self-evaluate. It just means that I – Sometimes the season gets away from you and, and a little tweak here and there might be all that's needed. Yeah, if they try to re- kind of retool this thing on the fly and next year that the same issues are reappearing, maybe we're having a different conversation. But I, I'm i very much not there yet. I, I'm on the same boat as you, Curbs. Hey, we appreciate think, the time. I think I'm fair with that, yeah. We appreciate the time as always, man. Thanks so much for hopping on with us. And what I would imagine is probably time for you to be able to be around your family and whatnot this week while you don't have to call the games. Uh, we'll talk with you again next week and uh, enjoy your, your time off, Curbs. You definitely have earned it. All right, guys, have an awesome week. Thank you very much. Absolutely, same to you. That's Chris Carver, the voice of the Blues, joining us here on 101 ESPN Blues off ice this week they are back in action next saturday once again against arizona so when they get back from this bye week and the all-star break coming up next we'll have the bk and ferrario rewind was it worth it for the broncos to give up all that draft capital and pay all that money for sean payton my answer is a resounding yes we'll tell you why coming up next you're on 101 espn
We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Kylie, it's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, BT and Jamie Rivers on the fast lane. BT filling in for Stoltz today. The big news in the NFL yesterday before we learned that Tom Brady was going to be retiring is that Sean Payton going to be the next head coach of the Denver Broncos. They decided to trade a boatload of picks to be able to acquire him, essentially giving up a first round pick and more Tanner, you had a big question coming into the day today of, I I like Sean Payton, but is it really worth giving up that kind of draft capital for him? I went back and looked at all the coaches that have been traded for over the last 25 years. It's not many. There's only six of them that have been traded for. It's Bill Parcells to the Jets. They gave up a first, second, third, and fourth round pick for him in 1997. Uh, Holmgren went to the Seahawks for a second round pick. Belichick to the Patriots. That one ended up working out okay. Yeah, it was fine. First, fourth, and seventh round pick. Gruden to the Bucks ended up going to the Super Bowl. Two first round picks and two second round picks. A boatload of picks in that scenario. Herm Edwards to the Chiefs for a fourth. And Bruce Arians to the Buccaneers. Another Super Bowl ended up in that one for a sixth round pick. That's it. I think this was worth it. If I'm the Broncos, I would have. This would have been my first call, and I wouldn't have wanted to call anybody else until I got Sean Payton to be my next head coach. Yes, I understand a first round pick. That's a lot. It's a lot to give up. But this is a guy who, in his career in New Orleans, he, he spent 15 years as the head coach there. There were only two seasons where his offense was not in the top 10 in points per game. Those seasons, he finished 12th and 19th, still not even in the bottom half of the league. Then, out of those seasons, nine out of the 15 seasons were top five in points per game. I understand that a lot of this also came with Drew Brees, and you're not getting prime Drew Brees to be your quarterback in Denver. But you do have Russell Wilson, who has been at times a guy that we thought was going to be a future Hall of Famer. If anybody can fix Russell Wilson, it's Sean Payton. And if he can't fix Russell Wilson, you know it's on Russell Wilson. And you'll find that out this year, and you can move on in a worst-case scenario. But for me, I think this is well worth any of the money that is being spent, any of the draft capital that is being spent. This is the guy they should have targeted. Yeah, look, I I like the hire of Sean Payton, and do I mind giving up that draft capital for him? No, but the the reason I do push back on it a little bit is because you just spent heavy draft capital for Russell Wilson. Sunk cost, though. And and he looked, well, and that's the thing, is he looks like a sunk cost. He doesn't look like the same Russell Wilson that we thought. But to your point, if there was one guy that I thought in this coaching carousel that could fix Russell Wilson, it would be Sean Payton. So, and, and also, you're right. It is now on Russell Wilson. This isn't no longer well. It was Nathaniel Hackett's offense. No, Russell Wilson had. It's on you now. You are the guy. You're under the most pressure going into the next NFL season for the Broncos. So, you know, I I kind of am kind of push and pull on. I, I do like the hire. I the only reason I pushed on the capital was just because of it 
going back to last year, trading away first-round picks for a bad quarterback in Russell Wilson. But at the time, wasn't a bad quarterback. Yep. I have to put that on front. I thought it was a great trade at, at the time. But I, I do think he was the best hire because I don't think like Frank Reich loved the hire in Carolina. Don't think he's a guy you bring in to fix Russell Wilson. I don't think he could do it. I don't think anybody else could could do it outside of Sean Payton. Yeah, and he might not be able to. It, it, you may be right, and he's broken, and this is going to be a disastrous trade, one of the worst that we've seen in NFL history. That is very much on the table. But I want to know now if that is the case. I don't want to continue rolling into 2024 wondering, man, did we make the wrong coaching hire? Did we get the wrong offensive coordinator in here? Were there other things that can explain away why Russell Wilson is bad? All of that is now off of the table. It is now Russell Wilson is going to sink or swim with Sean Payton as his head coach. And if it doesn't work with Russ this year, then you figure out the quarterback situation in 2024. And it's not going to be Russell Wilson. That's the answer. So I think this is the only hire that would allow that kind of mindset for the Broncos going into next season. And I'm glad they decided to do it. I think it was the right move for then, even though it does require them to give up draft capital. If you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page. 101ESPN.com and the free 101 ESPN app is where you can go to find it. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. For Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow at 11 a.m. The Fast Lane with Jamie Rivers and Brad Thompson coming up next year on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.